Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Blue Collar Off-Road Podcast, episode 138. I'm joined by Richie, Cody, myself Luke. Graham will not be here this week due to him being on vacation. And our guest this week is Ricky Barrett of Barrett Fabrication. Woo-hoo. How you doing, buddy? Not bad yourself? Pretty good. So, um, how did you, uh, how did you get into this sport before we start asking all the cool technical stuff? So, I guess, um, I always wanted a Jeep because, like, when I was a kid, my dad had a CJ7, but unfortunately, it that got totaled out before, like, I could, before I was old enough to go doing off-road stuff with them and stuff. I guess my uncle thought it was a good idea to uh, borrow the Jeep while I was uh, uninsured and race a dog and get in a car accident with it. So (laughs) that wasn't good. But I always had, like, this need to have a Jeep. And um, my dad liked to tell stories about how when the Jeep was in the backyard while he was rebuilding it, he had to replace every single bolt on it because for some Somehow, like, my little five-year-old fingers removed all the bolts without tools. He doesn't even know how I did it. (laughs) You know, like, you got that little retard strength, and then little tiny five-year-old fingers, I guess, they're like vice grips. (laughs) I don't think that's how that works. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's how it works, you know? Sheer determination. (laughs) Um, But, so, I never really wheeled much as a kid. Um... So what ended up happening is when I I was 19, I got a decent job with the electrical union as an electrical apprentice. And um, I ended up buying my first Jeep, which is a 2007 uh, two-door JK. And uh, that thing was amazing. It was was obviously the first car I ever bought brand new. And I was pretty proud as being a 16-year-old kid, buying a brand-new car. Like, my mom and dad never, they were much older in life when they were able to do that. And what ended up happening was I discovered the Suncoast Flatlanders. Because I was living in Seminole, Florida at the time. So then that's in the Tampa Bay area. And um, I met up with these guys, went off-road, and then... Like, they don't really have a lot of cool stuff down there as far as, like, rock climbing and stuff. But it's a lot of, like, trail rides and washouts and stuff like that. But needless to say, like, one of my first trips off-road was in uh, the Citrus Wildlife Management Area in Ocala. And that place was, like, awesome. Um, So I got bit by the bug pretty hard. And six months later, I ended up rolling my Jeep. Ooh, um, your new one? Yeah, my brand new one, six months out um, into it. I got an awesome picture that I um, have on my Facebook somewhere of me just standing on top of my upside-down two-door JK with my head in my hands going, like, what the fuck did I just do? Um, <laughs> so how but, did you that? What happened? How did you manage to flip it? So at that time... Young and dumb, I was invincible. I I didn't really oh, yeah. think 
I didn't really think that like it was ever going to happen to me. And what ended up happening was I was dropping off like this ledge, but I didn't square up to it. And I dropped the driver tire first and then it was too much of a drop. And so when the tire driver tire dropped, it kind of rolled over end over an end to the side. Ouch. Oof. Yeah. So now I, now I score up to everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good call. Good learning lesson. And, um, so that ended up getting pulled out because it was just astronomical to fix all the body work. And what ended up working out in my favor is I got the gap insurance. So that paid that Jeep off and my credit went up. So it was awesome. Oh, there you go. And, uh, so that's when I bought my TJ. Um, at the time it was silver and not yellow. And I bought, so this, that was, I bought the Jeep in July of 07. January of 08, I rolled it in January of 08. I bought my TJ, which at the time was silver. And all I had was a three-inch lift, uh, 33s, and bushwhacker flares, you know. And that's the rig I've been wheeling forever. And uh, that's the rig everybody really knows as my big, dumb, yellow one. Um, and that thing's really gone through the motions. And I learned so much on that because when I got into Jeeps, I didn't know how to do my own brakes, you know. And... Um, I really leveraged the power of the clubs because back in the day, like you would join a club and if you didn't know something, somebody in the club, somebody else in the club knew how to do stuff and they would take you under the wing and there was a lot of tech days and stuff. So you would show up to a tech day, you would help people and you learn skills. And then, um, and that's kind of how like my Jeep got built up is I went to these tech days, helped out other people and learned the skills. And then I would apply those skills to my own misadventures and misguided um, upgrades, you know. <laughs> and um, back in the day, I actually had like a couple, like I had like a couple posts on pirate hardcore stuff. And thinking back, back in the day, like it wasn't hardcore at all, but it was hardcore at the time in my mind because like I was cutting and welding, you know. And so, yeah. but it wasn't like the hardcore like what people consider that now where it's like one ton swaps and all that. Um, yeah. Pirate was something else back in the day though. That was my downfall. I just disco- got I got into Jeeps, I discovered clubs and then I discovered Pirate and then I was like I need 42s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like Project Dookie was fucking awesome and like there's a bunch of them uh, that was I was I was following pretty good, and it's been like probably like fifteen years since I've really been on pirate. So I've forgotten most of the stuff. But like it's it sucks because like that's such a valuable resource that's just kind of like falling apart because like photo bucket being assholes and other various reasons. But you know, and the thing about it that kills me is like there's so much good technical information there. That, like, it, you're almost, like, it's harder now to go back and piece stuff together. Because, like, I was looking at some um, wiring modifications and stuff. And so I'm on Pirate. And I'm, like, trying to piece stuff back together. And this was, like, a couple weeks ago. And I'm, like, 
You know, it'd be really helpful here if I could have a damn picture of what the harness is supposed to look like. Right. You know, instead you get that stupid photo bucket. Um, this image has been deleted post and it's like, yes. <laughs> oh, you assholes. Like, so then I'm like sitting there on my Jeep looking at the harness and I'm like, all right, cool. This is kind of what I think it. All right, cool. So I'm just going to put an extra ground here and an extra <laughs> ground here and an extra ground here because they're all black wires. So it's going to be the grounds. It'll be great. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you can't go wrong with having too many grounds. I mean, it's so easy to have weird electrical issues with just one bad ground. Yeah, um, that that's something I've been teaching myself. I added a extra ground in the cabin, um, and somehow that fixed my door light sticking on. <laughs> I don't know. Works. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off on that tangent, but you're going to oh, figure yeah. out that we do a lot of tangents here. <laughs> no worries. Um, so you've got the silver TJ. Are you still in Florida? Or are you coming up to New England? So I wheeled that for a few years in Florida. Um, I've actually, one of the coolest trips I did shortly after going on to like 35s is I took a trip up with the Sun Coast Flatlanders up to Georgia, um, and we went to the River Rock Off-Road Park, and that was awesome. Um, and even, like, 10 years later, after that, when I was doing, like, my one-ton swap, the bottom of my Jeep was still orange, you know? That, and yes. That, that orange mud gets everywhere. Yep. So there's a place called 5313, and it's like this... It's it's the weenie hut junior version of my bell basically but it's five dollars to go wheel there and um whatever but there's just this red clay and so every time i go to work on the jeep it's either the red clay falling off of it from places i didn't know it was at or the southern missouri dust <laughs> oh i believe it it's just it just like glues on there and turns everything permanently orange. Yeah, and like your hymns start being quiet after you hit it. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> it That's too funny. So basically, that was probably the peak of my wheeling when I was in Florida. And then 2009, I got laid off. And so being natively from Warwick, Rhode Island, I decided to move back because um, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was also from Rhode Island. So we just packed up and went back and um, went back to Rhode Island. And that's kind of where I started. Um, I, I joined up with the Ocean State Jeepsters, and that's when I started doing more of like the more awesome wheeling with rocks, you know, because like the only place in Florida I really went to that had rocks was. Uh, an old quarry um and there's alpha and bravo pit and we went to um been a while i want to say it was alpha pit we went to and there's there's some really cool stuff and my buddy mike actually um that lives in rhode island now ironically enough was from gainesville and like i actually got pictures of his jeep at uh jeeptoberfest um a few years before we 
left, but he has um, some really cool videos of his buddy Shane doing like backflips, rolling over off of one of the climbs that Alpha Pit. It's it's a pretty gnarly place and with a lot of elevation change for Florida, you know, because it, it's basically a big ass hole. <laughs> but it's so. When I got to Rhode Island, that's when I started doing a little bit more to my Jeep. I took off the 35s, and I did my 37s, and I've, I moved my fenders up. And and then I, I wheeled like that for quite a few years until 2012, where I finally um, popped my first Dana 30 axle shaft. And <laughs> um, at this point, I've actually learned how to do quite a bit of stuff, because like... I, I taught myself how to do gears. My Jeep was the very first thing I ever re-geared, and by the time I popped that axle shaft, I already put 30,000 miles on my 488s. Um, and when... So I'm pretty proud of that, considering I didn't do any tools. So in my humble opinion, that I think that there's actually a lot of forgiveness in gear sets. Um, as long as you're reasonably close, you're probably going to be fine. You know, yeah, um, I agree with you. If you kind of have a rough idea of what you're doing, yes. But if you don't, I feel like you could just fuck it up way too easily. Yeah, and it's kind of funny. I wish I knew what I knew. I wish I knew what I know now then because it would have made it, made it a much faster process. It, when I did my first gear set, it literally took me like three days just to do one of them. And that was like three eight-hour days because it's like you're – you don't know what you're doing. You're making changes that are counterintuitive and, and you don't really know what you're doing. <laughs> and I didn't really do a lot of research. I knew enough to be dangerous, you know, and <laughs> I was like, I could do this. Um, and you didn't have setup bearings or any of that stuff. Probably. No, I don't even, I didn't even have a dial indicator. So it was all like by feel. And I was like, how the fuck do I know what six thousands feels like? I don't know. I've never done it before. <laughs> you know, so like hindsight being twenty twenty is like, what was I even thinking? But it worked out. You know, it's kind of funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, so I put like thirty thousand miles on those axles, and then I finally popped a Dana thirty chromoly shaft, and that was at the Great American Jeep Rally, and like I was literally like walking the rock pile. Like, it was nothing. And then all of a sudden, one of my tires touched the grass, it popped. I was like, what the heck? I just walked this. <laughs> Talk about a throwback. I forgot about the Great American Jeep Rally. Yeah, fucking COVID did it in, unfortunately. And that yeah. and um, the, the fire department. I think when COVID slowed it down, they didn't want it coming back. And, and then when they were going to do it, the fire department wanted all the all the tents to be like fire rated and have like the maximum occupancy signs and all this other stupid jazz. Um, I think the town was sick of all the broken down XJs. Oh, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Easy there. Are we? What was it? Um, sorry, I got Great American Jeep Rally and Go Topless Day confused for a I half thought so. There. Uh, so no, I. I <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, I was I was gonna say I didn't want to correct you, but yeah, because American like the Great American Jeep Rally was more of like a car show with like a nasty yes. manure mud pile, yep. and then the Go Topless Day was in Munson, which was always a fantastic time. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, Great American Jeep Rally. My memories of that are that I went through the mud pit and my Jeep was overheating on the way home. Um, and I had just finished the 44 and eight and a quarter swap in my XJ in like 2000. And what was that? 15, Richie? Four and 14. And we went there and we like bombed over the baby rock pile like it was nothing. And we thought we were badasses. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it. it. Sounds like a great time. <laughs> oh, it was the best time. Basically, once I popped that day in a 30, I was like, I'm going to do 44s. Because I already had a 44 in the rear. Um, And my buddy Mike's like, you're fucking stupid. Why are you going to spend all that money? Just do it right the first time and do 60s. I was like, okay. So now I'm thinking about doing 60s. And I was just going to get like the TJ bracket kit and bolt it in with my short arms. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? It gives me another brain duster, and he's like, just, just one arm it while you're at it. And then, so now, a broken day of 30 turns to one tons, long arms, 14-inch coilovers, and... Away we went. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, that was September, and then, so I drove around my Jeep for a couple more months, ordered some stuff, took out a 401k loan, and I'm like, you know what, this is a great use of my retirement money. I went on Ballistic, and I ordered a whole bunch of stuff. I found um, a 95 F350 dual rear wheel um, ball joint 60 that I ended up white covering a single rear wheel and stripping down and all that. And then I found um, my rear axles out of a 71 Chevy K25, and I stripped that down, welded on a truss, and I rented the tool to bore out the spindles for... 35 spine shafts and um apparently i got like a small baron 60 so i actually ended up having to send the whole axle out the east coast gear supply they cut the ends off and put new uh spindles on it so i could run 35 spine shafts with that and i should have known better because when i pulled the shafts they were like 16 spine or something stupid like that. oh dude that's rough <laughs> Um, and at that point I was already committed cause I already welded my $50 trust on it. So like, you know, I'm married to it because 50 bucks is 50 bucks, you know? <laughs> Dude. Um, That's so rough. in 2020, I should have built the 14 bolt and I should have just cut my losses at the trust. But honestly, that 60s been amazing for me. Um, and those are the second axles I've ever re-geared. Um, I re-geared those axles to four, uh, sorry, 538s. I ended up putting, I ended up putting a Grizzly up front, and I had, I had a, I had Grizzly's front and rear. Yeah, so I put Grizzly's front and rear in it, and um, I did the 538s, and I wheeled like that for a while, um, and I was on 39s for probably like my first season and a half with it and then i ended up destroying the front locker and it was just stripping out and stuff and so when when that happened um core from torque master industries actually reached out to sour is like oh i got this locker in r&d which turns out to be a lot a torque locker so i ended up swapping that in and doing a whole bunch of cool stuff with that um and 
And um, I also upgraded to the 43 stickies at the same time because why not take out a second 401k loan and drop <laughs> four grand on tires? Yeah. <laughs> I, um, so, I feel you on that. <laughs> um, and that's basically how I wheeled it for years. You know, it's um, I actually wheeled those tires from like 100% tread, and I think I sold them to Eugene Whitford with probably like 20% tread in all the siping in the world um because i just cut every lug like 30 times so it's just like little gecko fingers you know <laughs> that jeep i feel like i outdrove that jeep that jeep had owes me nothing it has done everything i've ever asked of it and and more like you, bob loves to tell the story about how like i i think it was like I, I was in the top 10 of Humble Pie finishers, and then I I towed it home, unloaded it, and drove it to, to the local car show and got ice cream um, with it, you know, because it, it was still plated and insured. You know, I'm running Humble Pie, and I still got a plate on the stupid thing. <laughs> wow. That is, that is really impressive. So now... I don't know. I just I don't think I've ever met somebody that has run SXs all the way down to almost twenty percent from brand new. How long yeah. how long of a period would you say that was? So I bought them in fourteen. And I got off of them. I sold them to Eugene probably twenty twenty. It was I it was either twenty twenty or twenty twenty one. My memory is trash unfortunately um but eugene ended up buying them because he wants to put them on gary which i think is going to be sexy as all hell that truck needs sx's um <laughs> but it's so probably six years and doing a shit ton of wheeling like i probably got like 50 to 100 road miles on it because i would randomly just drive it down to the beach or whatever um and but it's mostly most of those most of that rubber is probably in field and forest. <laughs> so, how often would you drive that on the road? Just out of curiosity, like fifteen hundred miles, you said. It, or, so it, probably like fifty to hundred miles. It, once it oh, okay. once it went on the stickies, I didn't really drive it too much. It was just mostly around town, drive it to the local car shows or whatever. Um, go and take the dogs to the beach. Um, because especially once I bought the box truck, it just lived in there. I it just stuck it in there, shut the doors, and it was. What what was nice? It was dependable and reliable. I I stopped breaking stuff with it really, and I could just beat the balls off of it. And I knew the limits of the machine, so I could operate within its operational envelope. And my last couple breaks were just like I broke a double spline rear axle shaft during humble pie a couple years ago and now i get a 300 m double spline shaft in there from brannock and then um i think i probably only popped like two maybe three stub shafts in the front but it's been super reliable especially after um ditching the 300 uh, so 300 deletes yeah i was i was running 300 for a hot minute with four to one but I never upgraded to output shafts because I was too afraid of the case breaking in half. Because the way the gear 
cases work is the gears push each other apart so they're not really super strong in the cast cases are really good for that type of stress not like the aluminum cases are um and so i never upgraded the shafts so i was still running the 26 spline output shafts and 1310 u-joints and i was going through drive shafts pretty often for a while and then once i switched to the atlas i stepped up to the 1350s and and quarter wall drive shafts and i stopped breaking those um and that's the point where it truly became reliable so my only experience with 300s is i (laughs) got to rent a rig not even rent a rig i was leaving for tennessee uh two two years and a month ago roughly um and so miguel goes hey you want to drive the buggy and he's got this XJ buggy on 43s. I can't remember if they were stickies or not at that time. I think those I were Alcinos. Um, and so I'm like, sure. I got the thing to go into double low because we were having issues with getting it to go into double low. And um, I got on it on this obstacle at Richie's place called Devil's Den. And it hopped. I broke both outputs. And I thought I'd crack the case. So I ended up buying Miguel a new front output. And uh, I think he had the rear output already. So that's my experience with 300s. I wheeled one for all of 30 seconds and spent about 650 bucks on an output. <laughs> Sounds about right. Lord. The, yeah, so the, my favorite part about that story, though, was genuinely, I hear him drive out. And I was sitting probably at the entrance to the woods. And all of a sudden, he just heard, and it just revved up, and then dead silence. And I'm like, yep, he broke something. <laughs> and turns out, he really fucking did. Oh, yeah, and so when funny. I say I broke both outputs, I mean, they're both just hanging there, like, not connected to the thing. Clean breaks on both of them. That's Good impressive. Time. I've only broken rear output. And it's usually in climbing situations where, like, the last one I broke... I was doing the sucker punch climb, and so you, I think, I forgot what year it was. I think maybe it was year two of Humble Pie, and I got up on it, and I I got all four tires up on it, but it didn't hook, and it slid backwards, and I stayed in it, and the second it touched the ground, it just went, snap. Mm, yep. Yeah, so, so Luke was at about a 50-degree angle or so. And he just, he got all four tires to just hop up in the air just a little bit. Never took his foot off it. And as soon as the tires touched, just boom. Yeah. I wheeled it like I wheeled my XJ. If I had been in my XJ, I would have just stayed in it and it would have either not hooked and or whatever. But the 231 didn't blow up like that 300 did. The 231s are remarkably strong for what they are. Yeah, that's for like, sure. I, I ran, I had a 231 for a few years with my 43 stickies, and it it's still living on. I sold it, and now it's in my buddy's rig. Um, And that thing never complained once. So I had a 231 that, um, the original 231 that was in my XJ was not great. Like, I forget what the exact issue with it was. 
So I had three cases. I put together one case out of those three cases with an SYE in it. And I wheeled that thing for four years from 35's auto with a three link all the way up to the point where it had the four link double triangulated in the rear manual swap and all that. And it never broke until like last web wheelers ball that I went to at Roush. Um, I broke the planetary like it blew a ring of the outer planetary like the ring gear, it blew a chunk out of that. And Were you still that, running a three or six planetaries? I was running a three planetary in it. And it pushed that outer section of the gear out of the case. It still drove, though. Like, <laughs> fine. Um, it just puked fluid everywhere and made a horrendous noise in four low. <laughs> It's it's truly amazing how strong those little things are. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up swapping... Yeah, so I swapped that afterwards. I wheeled on a different planetary... Or, like, a different front case half with the same rear case half until I put the 241OR in it. I'm happy that you ended up making that choice because I don't know. It's something that I'm thinking. Of, I was thinking about going to, and so seeing you swap to it is uh, I don't know. It lets me see another side of it because with like Colin, all he all he does is just rev limiter the shit out of it, where you kind of do this weird in between. So it's good to see. Yeah. Um. So we're diverting again. <laughs> Ricky, do you still have the TJ? I do. Um, good, so good. currently the body is sitting on the ground outside of my shop and I got a, I got a fairly clean TJ 05 TJ tub on the frame. Um, it's looking a little sad on the, the rollers, but it's, um, it, it's, it looks, it looks like a Jeep still, which is good. I got a, I, I kind of jumped into project, no, really head first and really gun ho for about six hours where I pulled the tub and dropped a new one on and then I was like okay this is awesome and then that was two years ago and I haven't had the motivation to do anything <laughs> well at least it's not gone no so. I my wife would literally shoot me in the face if I if I got rid of that thing because I considered it and she's like I'll divorce you and murder you and I'm like okay <laughs> She's eating way too much ramen because of that thing. Um, so my game plan is I actually sent out an email to generate because I'm a dealer, so I'm trying to work out a deal. I got to I gotta follow up with him because I haven't heard back. I talked to him. He's like, send me an email. So I sent him an email, and I haven't heard anything. But I got a couple people that want cages, so I think I'm going to add that on to the order and be like, hey, like, I'm going to add a bunch of other stuff, like, what can you do for prices? Because I, I want about $5,000 worth of Generate stuff I want to stick on it and wipe the all. And so I'm going to put a new cage in it because I sold the cage uh, to Cody James. So I'm going to get a new Generate cage, put that in there. I want to do all the aluminum armor and stuff like that. And the game plan is to make a really clean, streetable... Um, Draw a wheel and rig that's on my 43 DOTs, but I don't want to do field and forest reds anymore. I just want to do blacks and 
get ice cream and the goal is to hand it off to my wife Sarah and because she loves driving that thing and um I think she'll be really happy if I give it to her and she's pissed off that it's not a raisin body but I think she's gonna fix that herself um because she says she's gonna just start <laughs> aiming for trees and I'm like I don't don't do that like at least let it happen naturally don't force it it'll happen it's way cooler when it's natural because then everything has like a story to it. it's a lot of fun exactly you know it's not like oh i hit it because of a blatant disregard it's like no that was the only way i was going to make it over this obstacle and do that you know it's what like you said there's a story and there's feeling behind it you yeah, look at exactly. it and you touch it and you're like oh i remember that i've got uh <laughs> I crushed the whole side of the XJ at S'more, and it was like I had to keep momentum going. So it was like, oh, well, I'm going to hit this tree, and it's not what I want to do. But like, if I don't bounce off of this tree, it's not making it up this obstacle. <laughs> you know? Or exactly. there's a chance that once it bounces, that it may hit the tree, and like you just, and if you let off, then it hits the tree even harder. Yeah. <laughs> And sometimes you need to carry the momentum because otherwise the tree's going into your windshield. So if you carry it, now it's just denting like near the B pillar. Yeah. You know? uh, it, it crushed the door to the point where the window won't roll up and the latch doesn't work. So you have to open it from the inside. It's great. The windows don't zip up? Weird. Uh, X J problems. <laughs> uh, I'm still poor. I'm not wealthy <laughs> enough to own a TJ. Um, and I have budget stickies, so... Well, the nice thing about X-Jays is they're going up exponentially in price. Like, you can't even get one for 500 bucks anymore. Yeah, it literally makes no sense. I don't understand why all of a sudden these things just jumped in price. And people just take certain... I've been seeing, like, Facebook ads. They take their $500 Cherokee, they add a zero on it, and then they sell it. So, like, how the hell is that five grand? Yeah. Um... I'm not going to say too much here, but like we were talking or Richie and myself were talking on the phone the other day about his XJ and what we or like what he's going to do with it. And mm -hmm. honestly, it might be cheaper for him to find a body down here. That's not a Wrangler or I'm sorry, not a uh, Cherokee and like buy that and bring it back up there because it's going to cost less to fix it up than it's going to cost to like buy a decent Cherokee up there. Seriously, like, everything's yeah. crazy rotted out here. Like, I got a couple of customers that came, come in for, like, buying advice, and I'm like, dude, like, look out west. And mm -hmm. the few customers that have listened, they come back with rigs from Arizona or whatever that's never even seen salt. And they're, they're just, they're sunbaked, but they are beautiful. And it, it's... It's a shame that the stuff that we put on the roads just destroys. It just destroys everything. It's yeah, especially the new stuff too. The new stuff, this like the actual spray stuff that we put down is wild. Oh, it's crazy bad. And what what sucks is like you, the JKs. They've held up a lot better than the TJs did. But like, I got a I got a JK here that I got to put a floor in. You know, because it's all rotted out, and like I'm, I've done frame sections on JKs now. It seems to be limited to the O sevens right now, but it's kind of scary. Gonna, it's gonna happen to the rest of them. Yeah, um, it's just a matter of time. 
they've held up a lot better than the TJs. I've I've had four year old TJs where I could stick a fist through. You know, like I've seen I've had two thousand six TJs probably in my shop around I don't think I had a shop at that point, but I was helping people do frame repairs and they were like four or six years old and like you could literally just poke fingers on in in through it. It's crazy. Oh yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. So my tow rig... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Richie. I I was going to say, you can take a rig that has, like, barely any surface rust on it and drive it for one winter. All your fucking fenders are gone. Fucking your frame is falling apart. It's fucking ridiculous now. Yeah, I got customers with, like, brand new powder-coated bumpers a year later. Like, name brand stuff, like JCR and stuff, it looks like utter trash a year later. And they spent all the fucking money for it. It, yeah, and it's, it's not like it's the vendor's fault either. No, it's. I think people need to start stepping up and actually voicing their opinions, saying, "Hey, we don't want this shit on our roads." You know, yeah, like, you'll never, you'll never get it to happen. With I work for a town, and like if they're if they do not think that they're driving on the beach because of how much salt or sand is on the ground, they're pissed. Genuinely, it is. It, it, all this uh, EPA bullshit going on, I am genuinely surprised the EPA hasn't put their foot down about the stuff we're putting on the roads. How is it, like, good for the environment? You know, I can't drive my fucking diesel truck without them losing their goddamn minds, but they could spray whatever the fuck they want over the roads? Bullshit. You got a good point. I mean, I can respect it. It's, yeah, it's just a mess, though. I agree. I mean, I where we were. <laughs> it's it's all good. I'm just I'm curious on what ecological effect it truly has, though. Yeah, seriously, know. the I stuff that they spray in upstate New York by my dad's house, like the grass by the roads, are dead. Like every spring, because whatever they spray, I think it's like um, calcium chloride or whatever. It's mm-hmm. it's just super corrosive, bad stuff. It is. It's pretty gnarly stuff for sure. And you know it's going straight to our water table. So, at some point, we're drinking it. Yeah, that's what filters are for, right? Yeah. (laughs) Listen, not all of us have them fancy-dancy filters there, Cody. (laughs) Why not? Because we're poor. Yeah, shit costs money, dude. I'm just kidding. But all right, let's I want to dive into Lemon Drop, man. What in the fuck is wrong with you that you thought putting 39s on Dana 30s? Like, what the heck were you thinking? Oh, it seemed to hold up the 37s quite well. You know, like Yeah, seriously, like (laughs) So the whole premise of Lemon Drop. So I wanted I basically got my Jeep to the point where I was out driving it. I couldn't I couldn't make it do any more than it really was. I'm sure somebody that's a better driver like Eugene Whitford or Paul Barnes got behind the seat, they could probably push it like 10% more. But I'm generally convinced it was I was pushing that machine to its limit of what it can physically do. So that's kind of got me down the rabbit hole of like, okay, I want to build a car and I want to kind of build it specifically for humble pie. So now I want a rock crawler, but I kind of wanted to go 
kind of go fast. But I also had a very limited budget, and I've also talked for years about how I think the N30s are a lot stronger than what people give them credit for. And um, so I kind of subscribe to the theory that if you draw a triangle and you put three things that break axles, uh, horsepower, weight, and tire size, you take one of those out of the equation, you're going to have a good long, you're going to have a bunch of fun before shit happens, you know? Um, and so that's why I kind of built the Dana 30s. Plus they were free, you know, like I built my entire car for less than $20,000. Which is nuts. I, I got like over 10 grand just in my front Dana 60. You know, like for it's um, for what guys are spending on a single built 609 with portals. I have an entire car and I'm doing yeah. the same shit they're doing, you know. Um, and with the 37 stickies, I was going to do the 39s right off the rip, but I kind of pushed out. Um, I got a little I got a little, little cold feet and I was thinking about it because the thing with BFGs they run small. So, like, a 39 is really a 37, and a 37 is really, like, a 35, you know? So, but I decided to play it safe, and um, I did 456 in the gears um, because I still had three teeth of engagement. Because, no, I, I know what I got, and I'm going to stack the cards as much in my favor as I can. So, I did 456 gears. I was going to do torque lockers. Because I love um, Cora and Eric. They have a fantastic business and they make a fantastic product. Um, I wanted to ask you about them earlier, but I'll save that for later. But the problem is, is that the factory Dana 30 carrier, any factory carrier, is a wet noodle. You know, yep. even my Dana 60, I broke my Dana 60 carrier in half and their locker was still reusable. Stuck in another locker, you know, actual uh, carrier, boom up and running again um but i knew that if i stuck with the factory on a carrier since it's so it's pretty basically a wet noodle under load it's going to twist it's going to deflect and i'm going to have a really bad time uh so i made the decision to go with the 30 spline grizzly lockers because at least then i have a full case um and i didn't want to spend the money on selectables and i'm a big fan of automatic lockers because it's why overcomplicate something with switches and levers and cables and airlines when it just fucking works? Um, so I ended up doing the Grizzly lockers in it, and I, I originally started off with the 30-spline uh, TJ shafts in, in there. And I ran those for the first season, and um, that's actually what I was running when I went to uh, my first Humble Pie and put up and shut up and a couple other events. Um, I ended up using a high pinion Dana 30 in the front. I just cut the tube, swapped them over to make it passenger side drop. The rear axle, I used a TJ um, Dana 30. So I had the low pinion again, stack, stack everything up in my favor. And... Um, I was convinced that I was driver enough to hold it together. Because, like, you always get those people that are like, oh, like, a Dana 30 is not enough for me. I'm like, the way I wheel, I need a Dana 60. It's like, yeah, because you don't know how to fucking drive. Yeah. You know? like, Guilty. <laughs> and, Guilty. And, and, 
that that's that's another that's another talking point of my argument why Dan Thirties is that I'm I'm convinced that Dan Thirties are way stronger than what people give them credit for. We're I think where a lot of people get out of Dan Thirties is they they're breaking Dan Thirties because when you first get into wheeling your first your first wheeling rig if it's a Jeep it's gonna have a thirty in it. And well, you're going to yep. beat the piss out of it, and you don't know what the limits are, and you're going to break it a couple of times, and after a while, you're going to be like, fuck this, and I'm going to go on tons or 44s or whatever. And what? And I think when you're at that point, you're still on the learn phase of how to drive. And by the time you get on one tons, and then you got like 10 years of experience or whatever, you know, wheeling all the time, at that point, because it's such a, it's a bell curve. The learning curve is such a sharp bell curve. It takes you so damn long to get up to the point where you're really experienced and you understand how everything feels and where you can feel the binding and stuff. I think when you take a step backwards and you understand the feelings that you're feeling, that you're like, when you let that clutch out and you feel that little twist in the seat of your pants and you're like, oh, that's not good, and you clutch it, like, that's going to keep you alive whether you got a 6 year or a 30 you know so for me i was confident that i was driver enough to keep it together but again like i said i also subscribe to the fact that it's only got 60 horsepower and it's a flyweight you know i i when i finished the car um originally it only weighed 2654 Something what? around there. It's what? sub 2,700 pounds. What? With tires on it? With tires on it. Nice. I got Dang. a picture um, on Facebook. So all my build pictures I just put on Facebook, and I just do the hashtag Project Lemon Drop. And I could probably find it. But I'll probably won't be able to find it because I'm actually looking for it. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it, it's I tried to make it as light as I possibly could, and it's I'm sure I'm probably closer to 29 by now because of um I swapped out the Yukon axle shafts and I I put in RCVs and then at the same time I I took off the um, the TJ knuckles because my when the only issue I was having was I kept breaking the 26 spline stub shafts. And every time you break a stub shaft, it would take out the grizzly locker because it you know, it would go from fully loaded to unloaded instantly, and it would strip the teeth. So after taking out three grizzly lockers that way, um, I switched to the RCVs so I could have the JK outers. So I changed my knuckles from TJ to JK. I'm running JK unit bearings, JK 32 spline outer stub shafts with the TJ 30 spline inner uh, shafts. And that's been working quite well for me. I haven't broken any axle shafts. My my weak point is finally to ring pinion where I want it. You know? <laughs> Did you and you know, that's, that's another fun thing about it. It's only $200. If it breaks, it only costs me 200 bucks. Like... That ain't bad. Not a big deal. <laughs> you know, and yeah. uh, rain pinions don't really scare me. Okay, so I found the picture when I first finished it, 
2,652 pounds with me in it. That's not. What? That's insane. Without me in it, 2,490. You're a little <laughs> dude then. Yeah, I'm only 180 with my clothes on. <laughs> that I just it—it's it, so weird to try to think about that a vehicle like you actually are driving this thing and it's that light like that it's unfathomable. Yeah, it's it's a little too light. Um, so I I found that it's my sprung weight and my unsprung weight are too close together, and it likes to roll over pretty good. Um, <laughs> so that's been an learning curve in itself. Plus, with the rear stair, is it's amazing how quickly that'll throw you over when you're trying to climb something. You know, you think you're doing good, you're side hilling a little bit, you you just cut the wheel, and then it's, the wheel basically folds over, and then the car just falls over. <laughs> it's been quite the learning experience. On it's been humbling, that's for sure. On learning how to drive the rear stair. Now was do you, was it as uh, different as you thought it was going to be, or did you think it was going to be worse? Or it's like it's was not the as kind of as I thought it was going to be because I kind of there's kind of two camps when it comes to there's two camps of thought when it comes to rear stair. There's the guys that say don't fuck with it and use it only when you need it, and then there's the other group that says use it as much as you can. And um, that's the group I've been part of. I've just been playing with it as much as I can because I'm a firm believer the fastest way to learn something is to suck. <laughs> you know, because, yeah. like, you make mistakes and you remember mistakes. You never remember success. And when I think back in life, all I can remember is all the times I fucked up. You know, you never really think about the stuff that you did good at because, like, at least for me, I'm... I'm super critical on myself, so I'm always like, okay, I'm going to remember that so I don't do that again. You know? Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. But, so if you were to rebuild it again, would you would you still stick with the 30s, or do you think you'd just bump up and do some 9s? So, um, the original plan was to actually build some 9s and stick them underneath there, because the 30s was always supposed to be in a cheap experiment. You know, it probably, it's short money for me to build them because I have the unique position of being a shop owner. And so I get a lot of stuff at wholesale. Like my cost for a ring pinion and installation kit's like 200 bucks. So like that was nothing. The Yukon shafts cost me 700 bucks a set. And, and then like I got everything frozen um, from my buddy from Fireball Heat Treating and, um, Attleboro and like it was cheap. Like I probably had like maybe like three to four thousand dollars into building two axles. You know, so like I was gonna run the car a few years like that and then my game plan was to start collecting parts and build like some forty spine stuff. Um but things kinda changed. The the car's getting a little beat up from like rollovers and put up and shut up and X Rock and stuff like that, and Humble Pie. Just it's it's starting to. There's a couple tubes that I really should cut out and replace, but 
Um, what ended up happening was I had a couple guys approach me about buying a chassis, so I went through all the headache of because um, as I was building this car, I was up. I I have an as built um, Bentec file, and then I have a 2.0 Bentec file. So as I was building the car, I was making, I was figuring out the stuff that I wasn't smart enough to think about ahead of time and making small tweaks. So when somebody approached me about buying the chassis, I was already kind of there. And so I went through this hassle of um, finding somebody. It turns out um, I ended up hiring Tra Travis from Welder D to CNC cut, notch, and bend uh, chassis for me. And then by the time that got shipped out and stuff, things changed. And um, the, the people that were interested in the chassis ended up going to Nate Gilbert. And he made them some amazing rigs because um, Nate, he's a fantastic, um, he's a fantastic craftsman and really skilled builder. Like I have a lot of respect for Nate. Um, and if I was lazier, I would just hire him to build me a new one. But I have this chassis now. So I got this chassis that I didn't sell and it's kind of a 2.0. So I decided I'm going to build another car. I'm going to weave this one exactly as it is, and when it's done, when my other car is done, I'm probably going to sell this, because this thing's going to be an amazing rec wheeler. You know, it's, it, I've proven that it can do whatever somebody, if, it's point and shoot. If you want to drive it, you can do it, you know? It's, it doesn't really have the horsepower to break stuff, and as long as you're not bouncing or binding or wheel hopping, like, shit's going to hold up, because it's, Binding and shock loading is what's going to break these axles. Other than that, like it's, it's just going to go. You know, by time it starts twisting up and it's not happy, the engine's stalling. You know, like I can barely turn the wheels with the engine, uh, and, um, with the engine idle on. So it's kind of a perfect storm for everything that it was involved with it. It works very well. So I can respect why, like the thirties are still working for you. Where yeah. I think if it was an automatic, though, I don't know if you'd be having as much fun because you probably wouldn't have as much driver feel to, you know, make decisions like that. So it's pretty cool. And that's always been my argument with automatics because it's, I don't know, I haven't truly wheeled automatics, but like I've driven them around and climbed tires and rocks and stuff like that. It's, this is going to sound really stupid being a stick shift guy. I don't like driving with two feet. You know, because like you got to load it up, but you got to be on the brakes a little bit, and then you got to get as soon you got to load it up, and then once it gets to the point where it's finally climbing, and then you like you got to get ready with the brakes because otherwise it's just going to launch over the rock you're just powered over, you know. And I just don't like how that feels. I, I like the feel of like I could let the clutch out and I could feel the whole car twist, and like I don't even have to let it out all the way, you can just feel it, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, 120%. Uh, as the other manual guy in this call, I got to step up yeah, and the manuals. Yeah, yeah. Um, all righty, buster. <laughs> I like having the manual myself because it's just options, right? Like, I, my XJ's got, you know, the what, 125 horsepower, but I know where it's going to do what it's going to do until I put the 241 in it. I'm still figuring it out now. But, like... I make the joke that I can break a 60 on demand because I know where it's going to break the 60 and you can feel when it goes to like launch up an obstacle, how much bind you're putting into it. And it's great. Um, 
the only thing that I want to do is I want to put in, I'm sure you've seen them, the drift style brakes. I want to put that on the rear axle so that way I can have a freer use of uh, my feet because I definitely use both feet when I'm driving stick. So I can understand that. I use a hand throttle. Even with the lemon drop, I got, um, I got a handle welded up on between the B... Uh, a and B pillar um, that kind of sticks out sideways because I found myself wrapping my hand around the, the exterior tube and I was like, you know, that's a terrible idea. So I welded a handle there and I ended up putting an ATT, ATV thumb throttle there and that's been amazing because then like, I got a nice steady spot to plant my hand and hold my body up and the hand throttle makes a big difference. Even with the TJ, I always had like the Terraflex hand throttle on the shifter because then you could work the clutch and brake and then you could have that little extra throttle control that you need. Because I've never really been good at doing that side foot thing that some people do. Oh, uh, the heel toe? It's, yeah. Dude, yeah. I've, I, there's only one vehicle that I've ever been able to do it in, and it's a Subaru. Every other vehicle, I cannot like rotate my foot well enough for it. <laughs> it's so weird. Well, it I make it hard, especially in a Cherokee. I've only figured it out once. My buddy Gene told me how to do burnouts, and that's the only reason why I know how to do it, is doing burnouts in my diesel Jeep. <laughs> hey, I mean, if there's, a, if there's a good reason to learn it, it's to learn how to do burnouts, so I, I can exactly. respect it. <laughs> so, the reason why I'm really interested with your ideas for Lemon Drop and why you feel so confident about certain things makes me nervous for the rig that I've been potentially looking at purchasing, which is a friend of mine, he built a built a buggy uh 30 front 30 rear low pinion rear uh, i believe it's nick jonard's buggy i believe he's talked with oh him. nick's yeah, yeah yeah okay now the thing is though it's an automatic and it's a 4.0 so the two like big factors that like from listening that your uh exact reasons of why the 30s have lived this doesn't have so it's interesting that uh well thank god the chassis is not big enough for it like a v8 if i were to purchase it down the line because then you know obviously i'm gonna wanna because why not um but i'm curious on obviously we don't have to speak exactly on nick's um nick's buggy but what's your ideas and thoughts on that so again it's really about knowing the operational envelope of what you're working with you know, it's like you're going to have a little bit more of a power than I do um, having twice the horsepower or maybe even three times the horsepower. But, like, you don't really have to use that much of your foot, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is, like, I'm pretty sure, didn't he cut out a whole bunch of the rig to whiten it up a bit? Uh, he cut um, a bunch of stuff out, and he's also reworking the... Uh, B pillar to make it a little more structural and save some of the tubing. Yeah, and so it's, I, I think it would be a good stepping stone, and even if it doesn't work out forever, it, it'll still work long enough for you to start collecting time, um, parts to build a 44, you know, because you can put a 44 back there and be quite happy with it, um, especially with, like, a low-pinion 44, because um, that was, you're driving on the, quote, crutch side of the gears, um, and then... I don't know. I I don't think you could go wrong with the departure cheap. It's easy to service, and if it does break, it's 
it's like you could probably fix it out there in the woods super easy. That's a good point. I don't know if I would do a 44 though. Like I have I have an 05 plus 60 and I heard that I believe the Chevys are low pinion 60s. So contemplating ended up swapping to something like that, but then takes up the consideration where the like weight weight is a huge factor in that and then yeah. the axles are gonna be heavier than the body and I, I don't know it's you kind of want your you want your weight heavier than the body and like mm-hmm. that kind of brings me up to the point where my rig's too even between my sprung and unsprung weight if i had more weight it'd be more stable um down low obviously yeah that's like with my rig i'm really happy with the fact that i have so much weight down low between the trust uh 10 5 and the trust 60 plus the extra width of them you've been in my rig when i've been getting silly with it that rig very stable mm-hmm. that's a good point i don't know it's just it's a lot of food for thought the only reason why i suggested a 44 so you could stick with five lug front and rear um is if you do a 60 in the rear now you got to figure out what you're doing for the front I was probably going to do a uh, 60 front as well. Yeah, if you're doing one, you might as well do the other. Correct. And I believe Nick's buggy is currently set up with both of the axles not having had their tubes flipped like your buggy is. So my thoughts on that would just be run 205 pluses because it's not like with a 4.0 and how light that chassis is. I think it's like mid three or sorry it's, uh, it's low 30 i think it's like 3300 31 with no one in it he just texted me because i asked him um, <laughs> yeah so, so that's pretty damn light you know that's at least a thousand pounds lighter than it was coming out of the factory yeah um you know so you put two 60s on there with the way that it's set up you're not going to hurt it. And if you're really concerned about the 05 plus 60 in the rear, put the 10 inch ring gear uh, kit in there with the bigger pinion and run 1550s in both of them. Yeah, but Keep still, it's still, a, w- doesn't it separate the pinion from the ring gear in that rotation? Uh, it's running on the coast side of the gear, but high pinion rear axles have been a thing for quite a while and they've been raced in like King of the Hammers. Uh, they don't partic- Ricky, correct me wherever I'm wrong, because you probably know more about this than I do. They don't like a lot of high-speed stuff, so you're not going to want to run it at 75 miles an hour, but it's a crawler. Yeah, you're not driving fast enough to really make a difference. Um, and I don't know the exact numbers. Like, technically, they're stronger on the drive side of the gear, but, like, again, like, it's a lot more axle than you really need. Yeah, I think it's a 25% loss, but like a 25% loss on a 10-inch ring gear. Yeah, I I don't know. It's just like I might as well do it right, though. If I know an easy option, which, yes, an 05 plus and just running it and doing it is an easy answer. But I can do the right thing. Might as well. I don't know. I just feel like it's one of it's kind of dumb to just jimmy rig it or half asset at that point yeah definitely don't half asset whatever you do full asset 
Exactly. <laughs> the the bougie thing to do would be to get a 14 bolt steer axle with 05 plus 60 outers on it. So that way you keep the same shafts and you get the extra bougie bulk. I'm playing with the idea of because I want to make a hybrid axle. I'm kind of playing with the idea of doing like 05 plus outers for the steering, but doing like a Toyota 105 for the center section because those things are serious beef and the cool thing about them is the pinion is almost like center of the housing that it's, is true and it's way higher than like a nine inch and it's higher than like a 16 or 14 bowl it's it'll be give me a good pinion angle and toyota stuff's just magical i don't quite get it but like i i put toyota um tundra drive shafts in lemon drop just because like i had one on my lift uh, we were doing a lift kit or something and i noticed how much the angle how much angle the drive shaft had on a factory tundra i was like yep that's what i'm using like it goes i don't even know what the angle is but it's it's retarded because like i got 18 inch travel shocks and i could do the Damn. full i have full range without them binding damn yeah it's it's stupid. <laughs> Does your rig ever feel like bobbleheaded, if you will, um, with that long of a shock on that narrow of a rig? It doesn't really it so much as I'm kind of on like my second suspension iteration with it. My first one, I did what everybody did with the does with the rear axle and brought the uppers to almost a point, like four inches apart or whatever on the axle side and i was having a lot of uh body roll under load so like i could drive down the road and like if i anytime i accelerated it would just twist um because of that i ended up putting on an anti-rock and that helped out with stability and oh that helped out a lot and um there's a lot of benefits to an anti-rock but it also helped make up for my shortcomings of being dumb on suspension design Question um, on that: Were your lowers fairly like parallel in the rear? Like parallel to the uppers? So no, no, parallel to them to each other. Like your rear, um, your lower control arms in the rear, were they yeah. parallel to one another? No, they're. I gotta find the. I think they go in about. So right now I have literally the bare minimum triangulation upper and lower to hit that magical 30 or 45 degrees, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, I want to say my lowers go in probably about 15 degrees. Okay, because I remember we were speaking with somebody not too long ago and he was having a very similar issue where if uh if he went up onto an obstacle with one tire and then put like went under throttle it like almost wanted to just flip over on itself and he would say the similar thing about being on the road was that like if he would turn on throttle it would just like i don't know like roll over almost like a fat cow and uh i figured i don't know if it was something similar to you hmm. i'm not sure what i ended up doing was i talked to mike katrini at fall crawl or wheeling for warriors one of those two events and i i kind of came up with the idea that the problem was my upper link geometry and when i talked to him he's like 
a hundred percent yes. And he, he gave me some pointers. He's like, you need to take these uppers on the axle side, spread them out as much as you can. So I ended up taking them from like four inches to like 16 inches apart. And that made a huge difference. Um, and, uh, it's, that really made a huge difference. Um, and like I said, I spread them out as much as I could. So, cause like there's, um, I wish, I wish I knew this off the top of my head, but I want to say it's like out of 30 or 40 degrees of total separation between the upper and lower arms that you need to keep the axle centered underneath the vehicle, like safely. And, um, I actually made a spreadsheet and punched in the numbers and figured out that I could spread it out to exactly 16 inches and have exactly the bare minimum. And when I did that, it's, it got a lot better because now like I can hold the, I can do a brake stand and the rig doesn't fall over anymore, you know, because before I could, I could load up on the brakes and it would, it would just lean and lean and lean. And now like it twists a little bit and, and then it stops. It's, it's a lot happier now. Um, like I said, I only know enough to be dangerous. I really have no idea what I'm doing 90% of the time. It's just kind of like, oh, this seems like a cool idea. Let's do it. Um, and most of my experience and knowledge is mostly from me making dumb mistakes and realizing, okay, I should have done it this way. You know, it's, uh, I learned everything the hard way. Yeah, I feel that. Um, I did the exact same thing when I did my four-link build. But I have a massive amount of separation at the upper control arms and also the lowers are, I want to say that my lowers at the frame side are like two feet apart or three feet apart, something like that. They're fairly wide, so the rigs, I was able to get the, um, it felt like the rear axle was just kind of loose under the rig is how I'm going to describe it because the body would follow the front axle and with the coilovers i was able to adjust the preload down and that really conquered that to the point where it's comfortable to drive it down the road now and it's comfortable much more comfortable wheeling but i'm also not as light and you know narrow yeah and like mike katrina mm -hmm. said it's um it's really hard to figure out the right geometry for stuff because, like, you don't know your exact center of gravity. That count, you know, like the four-one calculator is basically useless. Garbage in, garbage out. You yeah. know? Um, so it's a lot of it's kind of like precision guesswork and educated guesses. Um, at least for me, because I'm not like an engineer or nothing. I'm just some guy doing some stuff. Did we lose him? What? Oh, sorry. No, no I trip off. I'm good. I'm pretty good for trailing <laughs> off. Uh, that's fair. Um, <laughs> now, you've ran Lemon Drop and what has it been? Two Humble Pies? Yeah, so I finished my first Humble Pie. My second one, I actually didn't finish because during qualifying, I was... Um, my buddy Mike, it was his first year, so we teamed up to qualify, and so I was, we were doing the trails together. I was, we were on Sucker Punch right before the climb, 
and I'm just tooling around, and then all of a sudden I hear on the comms, is like, stop, Mike lost the wheel. So I, par- I, I stop my rig, and I stop on, like, I park it on four points of a rock. So, like, each tire's on its own point. And I shut the, the car off, I hop out, and I help him put his wheel on, and he had a wheel spacer. So we ended up taking the wheel spacer up, bolting the wheel on to just the wheel mounted surface. And so it was a super easy fix, up and running. I run over to my rig, I hop back in, I push the clutch, I well, I push the brake, and then I push the clutch to start it, and the rig lurches about, it, it moves about like a half an inch, and then all of a sudden it slides sideways. And when it slid sideways, I actually came down on my rear pinion yoke with a rock and sheared my pinion off. That's so, not great. Yeah, it was it was amusing because like at that point I still haven't broken a ring and pinion in the day and thirty, and I had like probably over fifty hours of wheeling and like because I put an hour meter on on the car and it only counts up when the car is running, and I don't let it idle, and it's not like I'm driving around to go get groceries or something. So it's just it's fifty hours of like straight up wheeling and like doing crazy hard shit and like that happens <laughs> you know <laughs> it, it it was amusing but that was actually a very memorable humble pie for me because um what ended up happening was i was able to actually switch gears and focus on getting him through his first humble pie and i'm pretty happy that not we finished it you know like i got him all the way to the finish line with time to spare and I don't know where we placed, but it didn't really matter because it was about just getting it done, you know? So, now that you've ran the two Humble Pies in Lemon Drop, what would you have done differently um, in regards to minor tweaks and things like that that, you know, so you know now? what I will tell you, going from 43s on a TJ to my Rock Crawler lemon drop on 37s completely different ball game um so with my tj i've done that i've i finished humble pie the bounty run in like 25 minutes with the tj it was fast like i think one year i was like fifth place with a tj um but 43s roll over a lot of shit <laughs> you know so it was a lot of just carry a little bit of momentum and I can roll over stuff. The 37s, I will tell you, my even with the day and 30s being how small they are, I found every bloody rock between the start line and the finish line. Because, like, you can't go <laughs> fast with it. So the car's, the car's not fast because it just doesn't have the tire size. If you want to be competitive with Humble Pie, you need 42s. Like, even with the 39s this year, I bet you I'm not going to be fast. Um, the 39s, from going from 37s to 39s is a world of difference. I'm not catching rocks anymore like I was, but I know I'm still not going to be as fast as these guys that are just on the 42s. So, like, if I was going to do anything differently, it would have been to build a car that I can, could actually support a good tire size for that actual competition. Um, like I said, I'm I'm playing with the idea of building some Toyota 10.5s 
with O5 plus outers um, just to kind of mix it up. It's going to, it should be interesting with that because then I'll have a super beefy ring gear, um, a really good pinion angle because um, the pinion comes off the center pretty much. And then like 50 degrees of Saren, I think that's going to be a pretty good combination. Um, and then the only thing I won't have is the ground clearance that the portal guys are having. So one thing that I wanted to just say, it's kind of cool to talk with you about lemon drop, just because it's like, that has been the epitome of the humble or the F and F buggy. I'm going to call it, or like the sequence of events that like you kind of watch people that wheel F and F go through is you know, you'll see these really, really built-up Jeeps, and then they're getting rid of them, and they're going to lighter and lighter rigs, and I think Lemon Drop is, like, the quintessential, just about as light as you can go for a rig. Yeah. It's It's been kind of interesting, because, like, I've noticed it myself, and what actually got me in the mindset of doing a Suzuki buggy was Eugene with the Blueberry. You know, it's and it's perfect and so fitting that he won like the first humble pie because people were going up with like fifty, sixty thousand dollar buggies and he's got this like ship box samurai. It's literally just a frame, a roll cage, and a pair of uh, Toyota six inches on um I think he was running forty twos that year and just beating the snot out of it and like it's nothing to write home about as a rig, but like it was he was putting on a clinic with that thing, you know, and um, that's what inspired me to do it because I was like, I was watching him beat the balls out of Toyota 8 inches and 42s. I was like, okay, like that really solidifies my idea for day in the 30s. And I wanted to be a flyweight because Blueberry's pretty damn light, um, even though it's still like got a full samurai frame underneath it. So, do you have any regrets about leaving the heavier stuff behind? I will tell you, um, I do not. So, after wheeling all year of um, Lemon Drop for the first year, I did. I I usually volunteer for Fall Crawl, and I was um, I was leading summit street that year and i i took to tj and like dude i was so pissed off because now it's it's you get really spoiled in a really white rig that's really nimble you know it's just if i wanted to go somewhere i could get there and being so light it doesn't have to work i'm not lifting forty six thousand no forty six hundred pounds of weight up and over stuff I'm lifting half that weight, so it just works less. Uh, I have zero regrets going super light. Um, for doing the type of wheeling I want to do, I, I don't think I'll ever go back to something over 3,000 pounds. Wow. It's kind of uh, cool to see such a like a massive change. I mean, you'd say like the quintessential standard is well over 3,000 pounds, and for you to be so excited about under, uh, it's just really cool to hear. And it's a totally yeah. different experience and uh, mindset. I love it. And I, I, I think my game plan for the next car is, like I said, build, uh, build axles that can handle some partying. And um, 
mainly put all the weight in the tires. You know, if I got to add water to keep it more stable, that's the game plan. Because um, I did experiment with water last year with the 37s. I put them half full, and it was doing some really cool stuff um, with half full tires of water, but that's also shortly before I... Catastrophe? Yeah, it's because um, I... Now, I was running tires half full of water when I was doing X-Rock last year. And um, fun thing about comp and competing is, in my experience, time kind of slows down. So, like, I feel like I'm taking my time. But then when I watch the video afterwards of me driving, I'm like, holy shit, like, what am I doing? Like, I'm... It, it just like I'm driving all erratically and fast, and it's like, dude, I'm not, not even trying to crawl. Like, but in my mind, when I'm driving, I'm crawling. So, anyway, like I was, I wasn't doing super well with X Rock getting my gates and stuff because I got denied on a bunch of stuff because I was driving like a dumbass. And <laughs> I was like, you know what? There's this one gate I could definitely get, and all I gotta do is drive off this 15 foot cliff. So, and um. I had the brilliant idea, hindsight being 2020, not a good idea. Um, I was going to drive off of it and hook the tree with my rear axle, which I did successfully. And then I threw it in reverse and I cut my wheel a little bit in the rear and drove up about six inches. And then as soon as that tire cleared that tree, it fell over sideways, tomahawking the tire right into, um, right into the rock. And, that hit pretty hard because of all the additional water in the tire. And I will tell you, once you break a tire off that's full of water, it really sucks to move around. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, we've actually, we, it took like three of us to pick it up and put it on the roof so I could drive it out. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh, and then man. I went even... halfway out and yeah. <laughs> I haven't even thought about that idea. That's hysterical. Now, I'm so, I just, it just it still blows my mind that these Dana 30s are surviving even with water in the tires. Like it just my brain it, cannot understand. There's it. a little bit of magic and um trickery that I did. Um so obviously I cryogenically froze everything. Um because one of the guys in my um off-road club, Rhode Island Trail Slayers, um Tommy One Ton owns Fireball Heat Tree and, and he does a lot of um he does a lot of black magic with cryogenically freezing stuff. So I sent off all my internals to my 30s to him, and he froze everything. Um, he's super supportive of the build, too. Like, he's giving me crazy good deals with freezing stuff. And, like, I got to force him to take money. You know, it's crazy. But So I froze everything. The other thing is, is um, I, I initially set him up super tight on the backlash. Um, but when I re-geared it last, I'm actually running um, a negative backlash, which a lot of people are going to be like, how the hell do you get a negative backlash? That's impossible. Um, so, But it's simple math. So when you're setting up a gear set, if you move the carrier 10 thousandths of an inch, you're going to change mm -hmm. the backlash by seven. So what you do is you set up the, the ring and pinion like you normally would. You get all happy. You get your little... Um, you get your little I, I kind of set my gears up deep. Um so 
I kind of get like that slightly frowny face in my gear pattern. I'm like, awesome. And then what I do is I take 20,000 from the non-ring gear side, move it to the ring gear side to shove that ring gear straight into that pinion because it's going to deflect. So why not make it deflect to its optimal running point? Um, and so that's the general idea. And I got, and I can't even take credit for this because I stole this idea from a guy that rolls with um, uh, Eric, uh, Eric and Cora, um, a guy named Smike. Um, he he does this for his KOH car, and um, he went from breaking ring and pinions during the race to wearing them out. Um, so I was like, you know, if it's good enough for a KOH, I'll I'll I'll, I'll do it. And it's crazy because when you put it together, you can't even turn the pinion. Like once it's fully bolted together, like I need a wrench with a three foot handle to turn my pinion around. Um, and that's been working quite well. My brain hurts. Okay, so like I get, <laughs> I get where you're going with that, and it makes sense to me. You're essentially shoving the gear into the uh, pinion, so it's got less Correct. availability to deflect. Does that yeah. explain it better, Cody? Yeah, sure. it's just it, to my brain. I just it. It like okay, you push it in closer. Now it's gonna add more heat because then now you're having more material touching, and it's gonna like. Uh, but the gears my are brain. slow. They're not moving like my you're doing That is true, but but you mentioned that some guy does that with Ultra Four, and like I don't know, it's it's too much. This is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, is- at one point, I was actually playing on. Um, I actually got some Yukon Hardcore covers that I had machined. I was going to extend the bearing cap bolts through the cover and turn the cover into a girdle to keep the bearing caps from deflecting too. Um, but those are still sitting in my toolbox, and I haven't really felt the need to finish that project. <laughs> um, that sounds like absolute hell to change your diff fluid and check on shit. Well, I'm only changing it when shit breaks, so what's the, it don't matter to me. If it, if it holds up, I mean... Gear oil is good for like thirty thousand miles. That'll last the rest of my life if if nothing breaks. Sound logic. <laughs> so now, how did you learn that with the uh, differential? Like, was it trial and error? Was this somebody kind of brought this idea to you? Was it what something you that you mean, just... like the math or? No, with the idea of shoving the pinion closer to the ring gear. Pardon me, the ring gear closer to the pinion, like. I don't know. It just like it's something that goes against most builder it's code, if you will. It, it's really counterintuitive, and I get that because when I first heard about it, it was like, "What?" Um, yeah, and, it and just... like I actually forgot about it for like probably five years, and then I was like, "You know what? I'm going to do this." <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! It's just that's so fucking cool. Now. Yeah. Are you nervous that with the 39s you're going to experience a bit more than the 37s? Like, obviously, yes, you're probably intending it, but how much more are you planning on seeing breakage with the 39s? Because, like, anybody that knows you or knows about you mentions it, 
It's like, dude, did you hear that Ricky just put 39s on Lemon Drop? It's like, <laughs> it, dude, it's like this like crazy thing. Like, do you think you're going to have much of a difference? Um, time will tell. So I did finally break my first ring opinion. Um, and it was very, it was basically on my second run with the 39s, but who knows how much stress that thing's been under? Because I've literally watched that ring opinion in the front. Uh, two years ago, I put up and shut up where I was bound, where I fell into like this crevice, and I, I was winching and driving as hard as I could to get out of it. I was literally watching my drive shaft. I let the clutch out. It would spin about three times. I let the let, clutch back out, and it would spin three times the other way. You know? Um, so. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, who knows how much, and like, I'm pretty sure the teeth were probably compromised on that. So I, I'm confident that I might, I think if I can get a season, if I could get the rest of the season out of my next ring opinion that I can install, I'll be happy. I'm, I'm, my life expectancy for ring opinions is probably a season. And, that, and that's kind of what I, I accepted that when I built it, you know? Mm -hmm. Which um, is honestly, that's really not that bad in all honesty. Because. Right now, the car's got 87 hours of runtime on it, and um, 87 divided by two. So basically, I average like 40, 43 hours a year driving this thing, which is a, a fair amount of wheeling when you think about it. Because like, like I said, the car doesn't run except for when it's moving down the trail. You know, I don't sit, let, I never let it idle, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, um, especially being a propane rig, it's just got, I don't want to, I'm lazy. I don't want to carry a 33 pound tank that far. That makes sense. <laughs> um, I did, however, put in, um, I put in a camp bottle adapter so I could turn a, a three, three way valve and screw on a one pound bottle and drive out on that. So that's my game plan. If I ever run out of, that's how I move it around the shop a lot. Let's just put a one-pound bottle on. That's not a bad idea. So, yeah. when did you do this? Did you build it with propane, or did you swap it to propane? No, I built it with propane. So, I originally bought the donor chassis from some dude in Pennsylvania, and it came with propane. So, I basically I paid like $1,000 for it. I bought a propane kit that came with a samurai chassis. And uh, I actually didn't really use much of that because I ended up um, I ended up doing a turbo. So I reached out to Got Propane, and then he's like, "Send me your stuff." And then he's like, "Oh, you need different stuff." Because um, he was going to hop it up, and then he realized the stuff I had was too small. So he sold me more stuff and sent all my stuff back. So I basically got the only thing I really reused is like the tank and the hose <laughs> and the samurai engine because. Um, <laughs> I swapped on, I took this five speed off the Samurai and I put it on a GeoTracker five speed because um, I used the GeoTracker five speed and then I took the low range box off of the, of the transfer case, cut the front output off, plated that, and so that's a 1.8 and that goes doubled into my six and a half to one uh, Samurai case which is also cryogenically frozen, and then that goes off to the axles. So my low range is like 200 to 1, 
In no, low, low first. Holy shit. Yeah. I'm I drive around that. mostly in like just six and after one and put around in like second or third gear. And then when I want to crawl, I go into first. And when I want to do technical, I'll drop down um, to like double low first. So, so that's when. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. Like, it might just be the difference in driving style, but I find four to one to be annoying. Like, that's got to be something else to wheel. Like, do you end up spending a lot of time in, like, fourth or fifth? So, it's... I get, I get pretty much shift... Um, I shift between obstacles. So, once I clear something, I just put my doubler back, and then I, I'll, I'll wheel around in, like, six and a half to one in third gear. So, I'll... So, being a six shift, I could start from fifth gear. I, it doesn't really matter. You kind of pick a gear and drive it. You know, and especially since I drive like a tractor, I, I straddle the transmission like a tractor. I got two pedals on one side and one pedal on the other. Um, yeah, it's just the gears doesn't really bother me because I just start off in third or fourth, mm. depending on the need. You know, I just pick a gear for the task at hand and go for it. All so right. Going, so going to Windrock is pretty much like out of the picture for that rig. I don't know. It's, it's, I've just driven it to Dunkin' Donuts. It does at least 30. I know that. What? But, okay, all right. But then that leads me back to the whole thing about the the ring and pinion. Um, I don't know. I just, I feel like then you're doing more damage just trying to go a little bit faster. I don't know, man. This is so, like, against everything that I would normally think about. I don't know. It's just so weird. (laughs) You know, um, I guess that makes sense because you got, like, you can just put it into straight one to one and then run yeah. whatever your transmission gearing ratios are. But the and so the reason I'm asking is like I just I don't use first anymore and I only have four to one and like seconds sometimes too low and thirds too sendy. So like I I don't know, it's just weird to me and like I'm not used to cruising around the trails in fifth and wishing that I had like six. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but that's also like I'm talking about. It's not smart. really going that fast either. You know, like I don't know. Most of my wheeling wheelings I feel in forest, so it's not like you're going fast. And the obstacles are everything's basically on top of each other. You know, it's it's kind of a unique environment because it's it's not like down south or out west where things like miles apart i don't really have that issue you know it just it's just you drive 20 feet and you're on the next boulder you know the the longest drive i have is to go from my campsite to the trail entrance. i also (laughs) probably would have had a different set of thoughts on that if my shifter hadn't broken so it wasn't like locked into low range oh yeah what i mean Um, yeah you need to be able to shift and that yeah. would drive me crazy. Like, um, I was having problems with my doubler not shifting, and that that was driving me crazy. Um, luckily, all I had to do is weld like a piece of metal onto the onto the shaft because it was it was it, my shifted. I kind of made a shifter with a wrench, and then by the time it pulled out, the wrench would pop off the shaft, and it wouldn't fully reach the the full shifting point. Sometimes. I don't know. That that was enough of a headache. Had to fix that quick. 
I um I ran into an issue where so my cross member uses a poly bushing mounted um like sideways so it's cross bolted instead of you know giving it the ability to rotate it limits it pretty good what i was not expecting was that it would start picking the motor up so with the oem mounts i had in there it would allow the drive shaft to come up and hit the shifter and it bent the shifter so i had to disconnect everything and just run it as is um I modified the geometry and put different motor mounts in to hopefully counteract that from happening again. Or you just start twisting the front or unibody rail, but it'll be fine. Don't oh, worry it already about does it. that. It's and fine. Maybe switch over to a cable shifter. So I've thought about that. I just have a weird situation because I have a JK two forty one. So it. I don't know what I would do as far as running that cable. Um, would that be something where, like, I would get a JK shifter and try and make a JK shifter work on the AX, or would I get a TJ oh, you, shifter? You could. You really just need like a bracket to hold the cable and um, the the cable sheath still, so you could have the push pull cable attached to the rod because the JK is. They shift off of a cable shifter from the factory. Um, huh. There, it, it shouldn't be that hard to adapt it. It's really you just need to make a tab to hold the cable at the transfer case side and then obviously a, uh, a cable shifter bracket for another for the handle side. Take a look at like the as um not as um take a look at like the Novak cable shifters and all. Uh, and um, maybe maybe see if you can rip off an idea of how they did it, you know? Yeah, I'll definitely take a look at it. Um, I've got the mechanical feeling pretty good, and I don't think my motor's going anywhere anymore because I just put in a set of poly motor mounts with the Iron Man brackets. So, like, I've got the 12 bolts aside or whatever the fuck it is. Um per motor mount and it's now solidly in there like it spread the frame rail or i had to get the frame rails to spread to accept it oh wow uh yeah <laughs> it sounds that, like fun <laughs> yeah that unibody's a little tired <laughs> well they do move around quite a bit yeah um I do apologize for my little disappearance in there. I got a quick phone call I had to take. So I don't know if we've talked about your business, but I know I, it's funny you say that. Cause I was just thinking about that. It's like, I was just thinking like, all right, let's talk about this. So now, alrighty, what made you start Barrett fabrication and make it into what it is today? So the business kind of happened by accident, you know, like you know, to go back to kind of like how the, how I got into the sport. Um, what ended up happening is, is like I got in, got into the sport. I joined the club, and then I had guys take me under their wing and teach me their skills and stuff. And then at some point, the coin kind of flips, and then you start taking people under your wing and uh, teaching up the skills you have or helping them and do whatever. And then. Um, it was right around the time where I started doing my one-ton swap. I started renting garage space because up to that point, I was doing everything in a dirt driveway. Um, 
And like as fancy as I would get would be like a piece of plywood for my jack stand and like blanket to lay down on. And I was I was living the high life. And um so once I started rent- renting garage space at that point, like I had enough skills and competent enough to do like my one ton swap and stuff like that. And um at that, and I was doing a bunch of work for people for free, you know, like helping them with the frame repairs and stuff like it's it, just friends helping out friends, you know. But once mm-hmm. I started running, running garage space, and when people wanted help, I was like, "Yeah, if you want to do it at the shop, just kick me like twenty bucks an hour, just so, I, so I could pay for the building, you know." And it's just money is tight, and like anything helps, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of just slowly snowballed into a business, <laughs> you know. It's just you're doing one job, and, and then you get another one, you get another one, and next thing you know, like, your side gigs, you're, like, I was working on an electric boat at the time, and right before I quit my job, I was waking up at, like, 4 a.m., going to work, and then I get out at, like, 3 to 6 o'clock, go straight to the shop, and then I stay there till, like, 11 or midnight and go back to bed, sleep for four hours, go back to work. You know? <laughs> I don't know how I did it. And thinking back is like crazy, but I mean, you do what you do. Um, and at that point, I was, I had quite a bit of work and it, I was starting to become a, at that point, I actually incorporated and I started doing stuff. And um, it was my buddy, Mike Nelson, who coined the term um, Barrett Fabrication for the business name. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I'm going to do use like that. the name. Love it. Because, like, the general idea was that uh, at the time I was trying to do cage work and stuff like that. So the name made sense because, like, you think about, like, ballistic fabrication and other companies with fabrication in name. Um, but recently I started pushing the name Ocean State Off-Road, which was actually Bob Swinsky's business back in the day. Um, and uh, when I was thinking about it, I actually reached out to him. And he's like, dude, like, I would love it if you took that name. Um, so I got his blessing, and um, I filed for a DBA. So forty dollars later, now I'm now um, Ocean State Off Road, um, and Barrett Fabrication. So it's kind of weird that I got two names, but I'm slowly <laughs> kind of phasing. Now I'm trying to push like the installation side of things, the lift kits, the wheels, the tires, more so on the Ocean State Off Road. Uh, Facebook page, whereas like the Barrett Fabrication, I think the last post is probably um, uh, I did a uh, customer's Jeep JL 2019 JL. We cut the cage off and did a generate cage in it. Um, so I was posting that on the Barrett Fabrication side. So I'm trying to treat it and uh, push it, push the business in two different angles like that so like one side for doing like fabrication frame repair and one side more so for like installs and because when you search for jeep shops barrett fabrication doesn't really pop and scream hey i build jeeps you know but ocean state off-road screams hey bring your jeep bring your your gladiator bring your bronco whatever we're gonna make it big and badass um yeah so We've got a similar situation down here. There's a company called Scorpion Off-Road, and they do, like, everything, supposedly. But then there's a shop called Two Brothers, 
and Two Brothers does beautiful work, but you're not going to think to bring stuff to Two Brothers because what is you know Two Brothers Automotive? What do they do, right? Yeah, sounds like two dudes just working on a Honda Civic to me. Yeah, basically. Right? <laughs> yeah, they do everything from like building cage parts to like diesel truck stuff, and you would never know unless you go in there. And that's kind of like the other thing is, is like I've actually done surprisingly well, and it's all thanks to it's really thanks to a the guys that work for me. Um, they they really bust their balls and they care about what they do. And because of that, we don't really have to advertise. It's we get a lot, almost all our business word of mouth. Um, yeah, that's the best type of business to get, is it not? It, it really is. And what's nice is too is with as much as I hate Facebook, it's such a great tool from a, a business perspective because, like, if I want to advertise something, I got like all these groups that are Jeep specific. And so I got this niche group with fifteen thousand people, like Jeeps and Mass. There's like fifteen thousand people in there, and they all they and they're all there because they like Jeeps. And, and so I could be like, hey, like I'm running a lift kit special, and I could share it to that. And like, um, so now all of a sudden you get a very targeted audience, and I'm zero dollars out of my pocket, you know. Yeah. Um, and the the clubs have been a huge resource as well. Um. The, a lot of the Ocean State Jeepsters members gave have given me a lot of support over the years with business, and um, even a lot of the NEA clubs. I get people from random, random areas coming down to me to do stuff um, just because they heard of it through the NEA. You know, um, it, it's it's really it's really been a humbling experience because like I don't think. I don't think I'm the best mechanic in the world or whatever, but what I do is I do my best. And at the end of the day, I think that's all you can really ask of anybody is that when you have somebody doing something on your rig, that they're going to do the best they physically can. um, And they're going to treat it like yours, you know, and like stupid mistakes happen. And some of my best customers are like super loyal to us because we fucked up and made a mistake on their rig but it's how we handled it too you know mm-hmm. so like i i think customer service is top notch you know and i kind of feel bad because like my emotions are always on my on my sleeve and sometimes i feel like i'm a little too crazy with customers but like i i think you know, most of them are usually pretty cool um because like I'm real. I'm not I'm not lying to their face. I'm not bullshitting them. It's like, hey, like, this is what's going on. You know, and like, whenever something goes on, like, I always take a picture or my personal favorite is like, I love taking people into the shop. It's like, hey, like, let's put, let's put hands on this. Let's see what's yep. going on. Um, that it, counts it, for so much. And exactly, because like, it's as a mechanic, I it, you're kind of fighting in that stigma where people think you're out to fuck them, you know. Yep. Like it's it, like you. What, what's your first thought when I say dealership? Nope. Nope. Exactly. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> you no, know, I have. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I have to give you credit because uh, you and Adam have 
from what I have heard, and Ratchets as well, kept a sterling reputation throughout the entire time I've ever heard about you guys. And that's not something that like is very common, especially in the mechanical industry. And whenever I hear of a project going to you guys, I never hear of it coming back bad. You know, and, and that's the thing. It's it comes down to the customer service. Like I know, just like the other guys. Like I know, if something happens with Keith, you pick up the phone. And you're like, "Hey, Keith, this is happening." You'll just say, "Bring it back," and I'll take care of it. You know. Um, and yep. I think that goes a long way with people is because people get it. Like we're all human. Like how, how often do you guys fuck up at work? You know, and it's Twice really not day, a fuck up because you can fix it. You know, um, yeah. I've, I've eaten some expensive lessons, you know, I've paid to go to college on, on some stuff. Like we've had a Jeep where one of the early ones that we were doing frame repair on, um, in, the tub twisted a little bit and the customer was super pissed off and I, I ended up buying the Jeep off of her because she's like, you know what, like I'd be a lot happier if you bought it. I was like, you know what? Like if I buy it, you don't have a pot to piss in. So I bought yeah. it. <laughs> you know, and I I ended up I think I paid twelve for it. I sold it for ten and and like I took a little bit of hit on it, but like it's gone and nobody's suing me. You know, and she's happy and I'm happy and Sometimes is sometimes you gotta pay, uh, you gotta pay to go to college for certain lessons. But I know what I what we did wrong on that one, and we'll never let that happen again. You know, because that's the other thing is it's really important to learn from your lessons. Um, like I said every single mistake, whether even if I didn't make it personally, it weighs heavily on my mind. You know, like in my, I'm glad to hear that you guys say that you hear good things about my shop because in my mind we suck <laughs> you know it's um but that's all i can think about is all the stupid little stuff that goes wrong and it's i'm a crazy person because of it it's i'm super paranoid like everything that goes out the door we i don't every single tire we put on we use a torque wrench for if we use wheel spacers it's always red lock tight in a torque wrench i'm all about procedures and doing using the right tools for the right job like i got an apprentice i'm pretty sure i made him cry one day um because i was losing my mind because i did a regear on a toyota and he came in and uh for a 500 flu mile fluid gear change and um all he had to do is take the drain plug off and he didn't have a metric Allen key, so he, he used his standard one and stripped out oh, the plug. No. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I just re-geared this thing, like, three weeks ago. I have, like, I obviously took it apart. Therefore, I obviously have the correct tools. Why didn't you just come grab me or grab my tool or whatever? And I, I wasn't as gentle with my words as that. But it was, um... It was a case of the what-the-fuck syndrome. Yes. And uh, and then how I found out is I had like two of my other guys standing there trying to figure out on how to fix this scenario. So I look over there, I'm paying three people to stand there and look at something that shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> so I am losing my mind and um, I ended up fixing it in like five minutes because I just grabbed like um, a, the next biggest torque spit, stuck it on my air hammer and tapped it in with the air hammer so and what's nice about using a torque spit is 
that's slightly it oversized. Bites. They hammer. Yeah, it bites and it'll cut in a new. Uh, so now instead of being a split, his drain plug's now a torx bit. <laughs> but it, it it cut into new uh, spline drive and now it's working pretty good. Um, but it it I probably overreacted because it was such a simple fix. But I was so pissed off because like it shouldn't have been an issue in the same time. But like I guarantee you. My apprentices will never do that again, you know? Nope. <laughs> you know, and it's very odd that you bring up the apprentice thing because I go through this now and, like, I have... I'm a tool and die maker by trade, and I'm sure that everyone on the podcast has already fucking heard this, but too fucking bad. Um, so I've got an apprentice that I was working with. He just went to nights, not because I ran him off, but because we needed help on nights. Um... But there were times where when I was working with him, it was frustrating because I would explain what I wanted done. He would watch me do it and then he wouldn't end up like he'd come back to me with a convoluted problem on what should have been a simple thing. Right. And it's like, OK, now we have to fully disassemble part of this die set to drill out bolts because instead of using the metric stuff on a European machine, you use the standard. And so I completely and utterly understand that. And it's like, what the fuck, dude? You know, we have and metric it's not really their fault either. It's, it's just lack of experience. You yeah. know, um, and if you talk to any tradesperson, when you, you can get these people out of the technical colleges and they, they could tell you how everything works. But by God, they're going to make every stupid mistake in the book as they're learning how to put stuff together because they don't have the technical, they don't have the life lessons of putting the wrong bolt in the wrong hole yet, you know? Um, my, uh, my old mentor from when I was an apprentice called that the ass tax. <laughs> the ass they, haven't, they haven't fully paid their ass tax yet. And, you know, be a dumbass, you got to pay the ass tax. Um, but going back to the customer service side of things though, right? Like there are two prime examples I can think of. One, I had a cage build and it was supposed to be two months and it became nine months and, uh, the scope of the project changed. I'm not going to claim that I was talked into, uh, a different thing than what I had originally envisioned, but like... We went from building a cage that was going to support chopping this Jeep up to chopping the Jeep up, and it just didn't end up coming out right. It was nine months behind schedule with every single problem. And then, like, I, where I live, I have a dirt driveway that's now, well, a gravel driveway now. Uh, it's not great to do tube work and stuff in. So I brought my stuff over to Sam at Naked and Afraid, and there was multiple times where my Jeep was there that I was over there and we were talking about what we wanted to do for the bends, how we were going to go about reinforcing the cross member because like, you know, this unibody has been wheeled for five years. It's, it needs a lot of custom stuff to keep it going. And polar opposite experiences, but both of those stick out because of the service. Yeah. I actually do have like a long-term project in here that's been in the shop for like two years. And I, what I've learned from this project is that 
I'll never take on a long-term project again because it's it's kind of tough with certain projects because like the day-to-day stuff is easy because you can get it in, it gets done, it goes out the door. But um, I feel super bad for this guy, and he's been he's been a a, a saint and a half because you know, and I always worry about being like the next DMR with this guy. Oh you hey, know, how it, did you know who I was talking about? <laughs> well, <laughs> Um, reasons, but it's, <laughs> so that's because my dad always said, you can learn something from everybody, even if it's what not to do. And I watched, I watched that unfold with DMR and I told myself, I'll never do that. So my only thing that helps me sleep at night with this customer is the fact that if he said, I want to pull out right now. I can hand them every single part of the $35,000 worth of parts he bought and hand it back to him. And not only that, it's in, it's in a, rolling, it's a rolling vehicle with all the parts bolted to it. It's just, I'm on like the last 10%, the, the hardest 10% of the build. Um, but, and it's only been taking so long and because I don't want to half-ass it. So every time I talk to him, he's like, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, dude, like, I'm sorry. I suck. I haven't actually done anything because I could do it. But you know, it's not getting my full attention. And I'm going to – I don't want to cut a corner. And like, Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this thing's probably going to be like 50 grand by time it's done. You know, it's like this kid's giving me like probably close to like $35,000. But it's almost all in parts. Like I have $15,000 just in axles from East Coast Gear Supply underneath this thing. It's got a full Genrite cage, Genrite fuel cell, Genrite suspension. Like he just opened up his pocketbook and was like, I want all the expensive shit. Um, midnight want, metal yes. work, um, it's got a Midnight Metalworks um, transfer case in it, Adam's drive shafts, ox lockers, front and rear. Um, it's it's a super badass rig and it's going to be super awesome and like i said i feel like an asshole because it's been in my shop for almost two years but and uh i was supposed to be done by the end of this month and i think we'll it might be done the first week of august so i'm getting super close but it's it's been a struggle to get to that point because it's um obviously i've been with COVID and all that, I've been struggling with manpower for the past like two years. I've only really had two actual employees besides my apprentice. So I had an apprentice and then like a, a full-time tech. And then I had a part-time fabricated welder that does all my weld, um, all my frame repairs and stuff like that. And then, um, and I've been trying to get people in for years. And every time I try somebody, they look good on resume. I do a work in interview. They kind of, they're working it's so hard to judge somebody off of a single day of work Mm -hmm. that you didn't really schedule work for them in the first place so you're kind of like oh just do that so i've had a few people like that i've had to let go because they were literally going to kill somebody um (laughs) i had yeah so i got a couple fun stories that i went to college on like uh i had one guy he did a break job and he bled the brakes, pulled the Jeep out of my shop, and my parking lot's slanted. So as soon as you roll out of the shop doors, it's kind of downhill to the road. So he backs out of the door, 
um, garage door, hits the brakes, and proceeds to roll into the Jeep that's parked on the island behind them. Oh, man. Because um, uh, I bet you, I'll give you two guesses on where the bleeders were. Open? On the bottom. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. Um, so he bought the brakes, but they were still full of air. Um, so he did that. Um, and then. No, that was the, that wasn't that guy. Painful. I had another guy do a lift kit and alignment, and then the customer picked up the vehicle on the way home from picking it up from me. Literally, like thirty minutes later, his front track bar fell off. Oh, his? Did you say track bar or drive shaft? Front track bar. What? You know, it's it, it's it, these are certain. Like, I probably shouldn't be talking about this, but I'm not. I don't, I don't really hide anything, but like and so and that kind of brings us to the customer service. Customer calls up, super pissed, and like you make it right, you know. Yeah, and like mm-hmm. it, it's, <laughs> um, and they lose a lot of faith. But I ended up, like I said, I let that guy go because he was going to kill somebody, you know. Like that's there's a couple other things. Like he loaded up a vehicle on a lift, and then that vehicle shifted on the lift and almost took out the guy that actually makes me money um and uh after that that was kind of the final straw i was like dude like you need to leave because i can't have you here like dude, you're you're gonna kill a customer or you're gonna kill one me or somebody in my shop what do you even do though when that track bar comes off that's like do you have to like call the tow company and be like yeah there's a truck on the way or something like that you can't even there that's indefensible, but I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying, like, that's an absolute yeah. fuck up. It, it, yeah. it really is, because, like, you never tighten the bolt, you know? Wow. And, um, and what sucks is because, like, I make the guys, obviously, like I said, I torque everything. Um, we paint marker for torque lines. I even go, like, this torque seal stuff that you put on there, and then it breaks off and stuff twists, you know? But yeah, uh, Grams showed me that stuff. That stuff's pretty cool. Yeah, it's super cool stuff. And because we make it every single lift kit we do, I got an in-house alignment, so we align it, and then we hand it to the customer, and we tell them to come back in 50 miles so we can retorque the lug nuts, and 500 miles to uh, make sure everything else is still tight. And typically, if there's a weird drivability issue, they would know by then. Luckily, we nobody comes back with drivability issues, and... 99.9% of the time, nothing's ever loose. You know, it's just, um, like I said, I, 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 I feel like I'm super paranoid about stuff going out the door, but it's only because I've had people make it this way. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so now it's like everything goes out the door. I'm, I, I tell my guys, oh, it's my job to ask stupid questions like, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do that? You know, it's not even the question, their ability to do the job. It's just a sanity check is like, did you remember <laughs> to do this? Um, you know, and like, I've been guilty of doing certain things. You know, you wake up one in the middle of the night, it's like, fuck, did I tighten that? And then <laughs> you go into work and you, and you find out that you didn't do it, you know? And so you, you fix it before it goes out the door. You know, it's just, like I said, the human factor is an interesting aspect of the business that you don't really think about until it starts biting you in the face. So, what do you think is causing the issues with finding good help now? 
Um, I'm not really quite sure. I don't know if it's... And so before COVID, I used to have people come in all the time and leave, like, applications and stuff. And then we never closed for COVID or anything, but I didn't really need to hire anybody until, like, that was, what, 2020? So 2021, 2022, I was really actively looking for people. But at that point, I think people got to the point where they're getting paid really well to stay at home and just fill out the job applications. Because in Rhode Island, at least, all, to stay on unemployment, you just got to prove that you filled out three applications. Um, and I never did online applications. I always said, hey, I always made, like, whenever I advertise, it's like, come on down to the building and we'll talk, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Which, to so, be honest, I appreciate that, because I want to know if I'm walking into a shithole or not. Exactly. It's both and good for both sides of the equation because whenever somebody came down, I gave them a tour of the building, kind of gave them a history about where we started, where we're going, what equipment, and like showing off all the equipment I bought. You know, like I'm pretty proud that like I'm still the only off road shop in my area with an alignment machine. You know, like that's a feather in my cap, you know, and that was 60 grand, you know, so I'm pretty damn proud of that, you know, and like I got brand new, um, I, every lift I put in, I put in two um, two post lifts that are twelve thousand pound two post open top. So I could do F three fifty duallys all day long. Damn. You know, um, especially since like, and that's huge because like I do do we lift a lot of um, larger pickups. I just had a F three fifty long bed with the seven three gas job in here. We were doing some work on it. It's nice to be able to pick up that truck and know that we're not going to die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a really good point. And it's in its confidence for your guys, too. I remember I was working at a shop for a little bit and they had a center post lift. And that thing was the sketchiest fucking thing because of the stupid little like the I don't even know what the fuck to call them. Like, the how you, yeah, dude, it was terrifying. And the, the guy was just like, you know, what? It, it is what it is. And I'm like, but it's not, though. Like, it, 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 It's not like. It is what it is until somebody gets hurt and then you're fucked. Exactly. Or a customer's vehicle falls off the car or off the lift. Like, yeah. I'm a huge fan of having stuff that's oversized. So all the stuff I've been buying is Ben packing. It's still a Chinese lift, but like it's overbuilt. And um, it's, it's, quite more, it's quite substantial, especially next to the 9,000 pound lift right next to it. Um, yeah. And my alignment rack is rated for 14,000 pounds. And again, when I bought the rack and my lifts, I wanted something that could pick up my F-350 dually, you know? And, and, if I, and I always had the mentality of, if I can't work on my own junk, what's the point? Especially with a Ford, they're always, bro- always broken anyway, you know? So it's... Need to be <laughs> yeah, able you to work on. back. Let me be happy with mine. It's called job security, baby. That's what Fords are. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and, uh, I, like I said, I'm pretty proud of the shop that we've been able to build here because I'm constantly upgrading, buying new equipment. You know, it's one of the coolest things I bought was the alignment machine. I was so scared about that investment, you know, and five years ago, spending $60,000 was an astronomical amount of money. And I was like, how am I going to even pay for this or whatever? And yeah. 
I, if I had to do it again, I would do it all over again, 100%. It's, I don't understand how anybody in my business can do what we do without an alignment machine. It's, it's so essential. To, every single thing we do needs an alignment. You change yeah. the control arm, alignment machine. Death level diagnosis, alignment machine. You know, like everything goes on it, you know. And so and that's been such a huge tool for sales and making sure everything that leaves our shop All drives the way exactly how it's supposed to drive. Yeah. Because I'm well, um, you're expected to tell people like, hey, sorry, you're going to have to drive this to an alignment shop. But on top of it, it might absolutely suck to drive to the alignment shop. And then they might have a bad taste in their mouth. And then they're taking it to another mechanic to check on your shit because they're like, hey, this dude just had me drive this thing. This thing is sketchy. Like having your alignment machine and being able to like double check yourself is fucking awesome. Yeah. And when I first opened up my business, that's what I was doing. But at the time, I think I was getting like 40 bucks an hour. So you get what you pay for. Um, Correct. And, yeah. And then after I moved into my current building in 17, uh, there's Town Fair Tire right up the road. So they were doing all my alignments for wholesale, but they were getting pretty pissed off at me because they won't, all they do is tell and go. They won't adjust control arms or whatever. So every single lift kit I was selling, I was selling adjustable control arms because I'm big, I'm big about getting the numbers where the geometry where it needs to be because otherwise it dries like trash. So, Every every lift kit we did, they would align it like three, four times because they would align it. We'd pick it up, look at the paper, make um make an adjustment, and send it back up the road. You know, so like sometimes we get it on the second shot, sometimes we get it on the third shot. You know, but each time I did it, now it's two guys driving up the road, and at that time there's only like two of us all walking up the shop, driving up the road, dropping them off, driving back, unlocking the shop, and but it's a huge hassle. You know, just mm -hmm. from the time saving driving around, um, it, the machines pay for itself. You know, and I'm actually, I'm actually in the process of getting ready to upgrade my tire machines. Like, I think I made a decision to spend. You don't even want to know how much these tire machines are, but I'm going to get a a Hunter tire machine that's leverless and a wheel. Oh my god! Yeah. There's are they like 80 or something? I know that there's um, something absolutely insane. Well, I'll let you know. I got the folder right here in front of me. So I was quoted um, after taxes and all that $46,308.22. For a tire machine. How big of a tire oh, can you well, do? On? That's a tire machine and a road force balancer. Still. Um, I think Jeez. Let's see. I think the tire machine's good up to like 40, 46. Okay, so I mean, other than that, you got to spoon it, but you're yeah, going to the next two years. And I, I'm honestly more excited about the road force balancing because, like, there's been a few customers where they come back a couple times and they're like, oh, I got a vibration. We rebalance the tires. And after, like, two tries or three tries i'm usually like look like we've done everything we can it's just like you need to go to like somewhere with a road force balance and um it's just the equipment i have is just too limited um so the game plan is to invest in new equipment and i'm hoping that this this i'm super nervous about this decision too 
but I'm kind of baking on the experience that the alignment machine was the best decision I ever made, you know, and just um, with the better equipment, you get a better product and a better product gets people talking more about like, oh, I've never had my 37s run down the road so well, you know, and mm-hmm. that's what I want. I want to, I don't want to just do the best I can. Like I, I never settle for good enough, if that makes sense. You know, like my best today doesn't necessarily is going to be my best tomorrow. Yeah, and that's the best that you can do as a business owner because there are things that I'm willing to live with, but my name is only on it because it's my vehicle. Exactly. And that's you the know? other thing. Like, my name's literally on the side of building it. If, like, bar fabri- fabrication ever turns into a shit aim, I literally ruined my personal name. Like, I got to live with that for the rest of my life. Um, It's just... Luckily, Alfredo's only a small geographic, so at least you're only going to suck to a few people, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't have laughed, but that was funny as fuck. I mean, I'm just kidding. Good. I mean, I got 3,000 customers in my database now, so that's a lot of people to disappoint. That's fantastic. I mean, honestly, though, that's really, really incredible. For being a local guy in an off road shop, that's, I mean, do pat yourself on the back for that. That's awesome. It's kind of crazy because, like, I tell people the business happened by accident. You know, it's just one thing just kind of happened and you just follow the rabbit hole. <laughs> wow. Well, all righty. So we are past our two and a half hour, close to our two and a half hour mark. Um, slowly trying to start wrapping stuff up here. So, quick thing where can people find you on social media? So, I'm, they can find me on Facebook. Uh, as Ricky Barrett, I think it's just facebook.com slash Ricky Barrett. Um, is, yeah, that's it. And then on Instagram, I'm Barrett Fabrication. Um, and then I also got a website, barrettfabrication.com, oceanstateoffroad.com. And uh, I think that's it. Just don't message me on Instagram because I don't know how to do it. Like, I go on there probably, like, once every couple months, post a couple pictures, and then go back to ignoring it, because I don't know how to use DMs and stuff. Which I mean, is ironic, because I used to, my, my first business was a, a software development business. <laughs> um, so. I mean, you did pretty damn good at getting into this, so, like, there wasn't any hiccups or anything with that. Oh, I didn't know that Discord had channels, so. Yeah, I never yeah, even used was, Discord before. <laughs> yeah, that was simple enough. Um, Cody, before I have to steal your thunder... You are not going to ask the question, you fucker. You're going to ask it then. Alrighty, so, being a business owner and somebody that's probably going to be suggesting tires to people, what is the best DOT tire for off-roading, and what is the worst DOT tire for off-roading, under your opinion? I probably should have put some thought into this. Um, I'm pretty much a BFG fanboy at this point. Um, I've seen KM3s do some really awesome stuff. Um, and like I've, I've pretty much got DOTs on everything I own now. My 21 Gladiators got them. I had them on my OM617 Diesel TJ. And I have them on my 62 Rustosaurus um, Jeep pickup. And, like, everywhere I point those tires, they just go. But I've also had a lot of good experience 
with pretty much every DOT tire I've had. Um, but I think they hook up the best for the New England area. Plus, they wear like iron. Like the Mike Gladiators got 54,000 miles on those tires, and they're still probably like 30%, 40% tread. You know, it's they're getting close to the end of their life, but I'm pretty happy with them considering that um, I feel like, like some other tires like uh, Patagonia's or whatever would be what bald by now. Um, as far as worst tire goes, Hmm. You said the fan favor for the worst just a second ago. <laughs> well, the Patagonia wears are pretty damn bad. <laughs> I will I will tell you, I started selling those. I sold probably like three sets, and then I had a set cause death wobble. And after that, I was like, I'm never selling a set again. Because like I, I don't want to sell somebody a set of tires and have them death wobble. Because like we had this customer they had like forties on it and a massive body lift and all that. We took the body lift off and we put thirty sevens on it with fuel wheels and it was really good looking on those uh, Patagonias and fuels. Mm -hmm. But after we did that, all it had was death wobble. And no matter what we did, and we we found a couple issues and we we strained that out and nothing we would do would totally get rid of it. We took the tires off, put the forties back on it, and all of a sudden it drove like a million dollars. And um after that I was like, you know what, like I'm not selling these anymore. Because I'm a firm believer you get what you pay for. You know, it's if if it's if the price is really good and like you're feel like you're saving a lot of money. I guarantee you, you're not saving money. You're fucking yourself somewhere. It's a compromise. Um, See, I don't know about that because back in the day when I picked up my General Grabber XMTs, they were only 180 bucks a tire for uh, 35s. Oh, and I have yet to find a negative other than like soft sidewalls. Uh, but I mean, that's any kind of C load C 35 or DOT tire. So I mean, I don't know. There is some exceptions to the rules, and I would say it's a cost leader. Um, kind of like Harbor Freight. Harbor Freight kind of got their name where all their tools are garbage, and all, and all of a sudden they start coming out with quality tools again, you know, because they got to build their name back up. And notice that they threw away all their shit names and they, re they come out with new brands and they're higher yeah, quality. Like but I guarantee you, if we wait long enough, the cost engineers are going to get in and they're going to start chipping away at the quality of the, those tools so they're going to get their profit margins back where they need to be. So in the case with the tires, either that has to happen or it's a cost leader. So they're losing money initially to get the name out there and get some brand loyalty. And then now they start raising the price up where they're actually got the profit margins where they need it to be. And now people know what they are because, like, you can't it, just imagine how hard it is to get into a tire market where nobody knows who you are. And you're like, okay, like, I'm going to make this quality pro a product. And um, I got to, you got to kind of bait people to buy your stuff um, to get the name out there, you know? And it's kind of, kind of the same reason why people give, on YouTubers, all this you know, free shit. It's because like they just gotta get the name out there, get in, get the name in front of enough people, 
at a good enough cost, people will be like, hey, like, I'm going to take that. I don't know. That's just my opinion. I think it's a cost leader when certain things Honestly, are that makes that makes a ton of sense to me because they are expensive as shit now. Now I think they're like 360 attire back bef- compared to before, um, which is just crazy to me that uh, they did such a high price jump. But honestly, with that explanation right there, it makes sense. Yeah, and take it with a grain of salt. Like I, I'm not a business person. <laughs> I don't know anything about business. I just kind of show up and do what I'm told. You just kind of do business. Yeah. Um, I think the same thing is probably going to happen with the Baja Boss X's. Um, because those they're are a fantastic rel- tire. Dude, I just got a set of 40 stickies in those. 620 a tire. I don't see that lasting forever when reds are going for what they're going for. And like the 40 Baja Pros were 755 a tire. Yeah. I, I I really think it's a little bit of a cost leader to get it out there. And then once they get the brand loyalty, because right now they're trying to bite into a market that like pretty much dominated by Interco and BF Goodrich, you yep. know, and those, those ball sexes are fantastic tires. I've seen them do some cool stuff. My buddy Mike got them probably two seasons ago. It's funny because like, he never told me to order them. He's, he's just like, I really want these tires. I really want these tires. And I got tired of fucking watching a flounder on Patagonia wears because he bought the black labels off of Greenleaf. And um, that was the worst money he's ever spent. Oh, and yeah. rolling around, just trying to wheel with them, I was pissed off. I was like, dude, like, I don't want to deal with this. So without him asking him or telling him i learned him tires and when they showed up i said your tires are here you owe me like x amount of dollars <laughs> he's like what the fuck you're worse than my drug dealer <laughs> yes you know um, like and the second run out with them he was we were doing we were at field and forest and he was trying to climb up lady lumps and he climbed it and then he slid back a little bit and it caught so much traction it, it ejected the pinion out of his nine inch so without him terrifying me i ended up ordering him a new nine inch center section it's like by the way you owe me for this too <laughs> uh, and so, meanwhile his wife's getting pissed off and he's like why are you spending so much money and he's like it's not me it's ricky <laughs> is there any advice you have for breaking them in or just set them to 12 pounds and go um so that's an interesting concept too is how much tire pressure is too much or how much is too little it's that's a magic number that you got to search for yourself. It's kind of like you got to do a little bit of soul searching. Like, when I, oh, that was I just a rough. I had that like was a four. Rough number. I had four psi my SXs, and I'll tell you that was way too little. I ended up settling at six, and you got to kind of watch how they work because um, if the you want them to mold around stuff, but you don't want the sidewalls to wrinkle because once the sidewalls start wrinkling. The tire goes from a flat contact patch to like curling up, and then you lose a whole bunch of traction, and then it'll slip. So if you're watching somebody and their sidewall wrinkles, you'll notice each time it wrinkles, the tire kind of jumps a little bit. Um, I never put two and two together there, but that's interesting. I will say the 12 PSI thing, that's just a random number I'm throwing out there because my Nittos were good at six. 
Um, but I ran them on narrow wheels and all that. And these wheels that I've got now are slightly wider. And being stickies, I don't want them to do the same thing that my Nittos did where you had to run them low because they were such a stiff carcass. I want the stickies to actually have a little bit of um, pressure to almost like push them into contacting. So I'm thinking it's probably going to be like 8 to 12 pounds is where they're going to live. And that's probably a good starting point because like it's it's also super easy to let your out as as you can go with each trip, just kind of watch how they work and you'll kind of determine what the tire pressure you are at. Like on my last trip out with the 39s, I was at APSI and that was a little too much. And then, um, so I think my next trip, I'm probably going to be like at six and just see how they work. Um, unfortunately, I don't have enough experience with those tires, but I think Mike's probably running... He's definitely running single digits in his, and his rig's probably, like... I, when I was asking, I meant, or, like, do they like to be heated up first, or are they kind of like a... They'll break in as they break in tire, because I've watched with the Intercos, they seem to really like that after that first good burnout, they start working better. Yeah, I... I think they're going to be a good crawler tire. I've been seeing them. I've been watching them crawl pretty good. Um, I don't think they're like the, what are they, the KRB 3s or whatever. Um, there's, there's the turf tires that um, Bradley was running forever. Like those things, they were stickies, but they weren't stickies until you spun them. You know, so like they would do okay, but like, they weren't really that great, but you'd have to heat them up, and then they would work their magic. You know, I don't think they're quite like that. Um, they're so damn soft and gummy. Um, I don't really think you really need to heat them up. I I think, if anything, I think they'll be better once they hit, like, half tread. Really? Yeah, because the same thing with, like, the regular boss tires is there's just too much fucking tread. The, the lugs fold. And you and then you lose the tre uh, tread. I think the I think I think those tires at half tread would also be amazing. Um, awesome. So before we go and make this the tire podcast, uh, I suppose that we are definitely like going to blow past our normal time limit here. Um, <laughs> do you have any questions for us? Um. Yeah. Why the hell do you want to talk to me? <laughs> um, well, so. I can answer this one very easily. I've got different answer than Cody's got, so feel free to throw it out there. Alrighty, so for me, A, it's because I'm looking into picking up a 30-30 rig, so I really wanted to hear your uh, thought processes on that. And two, because you're doing different cool shit, and that's what the people fucking love, man. People going out and trying out new adventures that nobody else wants to take the risk on and spend the money and time on, people want to hear that shit. So honestly, to me, you're really, you're really, really smart. You have a really good head on your shoulders. You're great at talking. You have a cool rig. You're doing different shit. And you're from New England. Boom. Um, in my case, it's because I was talking with Nick while Nick was building that buggy um, on and off. And we were out at S'more. And we kept throwing your name back and forth. And I met you at um 
go topless day in 2015, I want to say, or 2016. Um, And you were just a super nice dude, and you didn't know me from anyone. That was when I rolled that uh, ZJ, and you took a quick look over it, and were like, yeah, 2018. Was that 18? It would have been 18 because uh, Kate and I had just started dating the December before. Okay, so then it was 18. Um, You took a quick look over it, and then we talked about your rig for like 30 minutes, and then I went back to wheeling, and I just remembered that. So, I'm glad I wasn't a dick. (laughs) (laughs) And also, you have a reputation that precedes you in a good manner and i wanted to hear how you earned that reputation is another point on uh, it makes me super happy and thankful that people have high opinions of me because it's like i said it's i'm super critical on myself and and i guess everybody likes hearing good things about themselves but it's i i'm truly honored to the fact that you guys think that we're that I'm doing good stuff and um, that I even speak well because I don't think I do. But eh. when Bob Swinsky says that, yeah, he's a good fucking dude, you should definitely talk to him. Something's, yeah. something's there. He says that about very few people. Bob's such good people. You know, the first time I met Bob, I was like, fuck, fuck that guy. You know, because <laughs> he's a little bit of gruff, he's a little bit abrasive, but. The thing is, is like I took the time out of my day to actually start talking to him and Liza, and like I realized that they're really, really awesome people. They're down to earth, and they care more about the sport than most people do. You know, like they literally eat, sleep, and breathe the sport. You know, um, even even now, Liza's still really um, active in the clubs and um, at, you know, with the NEA and stuff like that. And like it, it's huge that they. Because they could shut the doors on F and F anytime. The place is paid off. They don't need they don't need it to make money. You know, they could just turn it into a campground and not deal with all us retards fucking up their weekend every weekend. You know? Um and the fact that they're willing to put up with it because they love the sport is huge, you know, and um it, it's they're super great people and I'm so thankful that I'm able to actually know them and hang out with them from time to time you know uh it was and one of the last time i was hanging out with them was after a snow run um we were doing the snow run in march and then when we got back to field and forest doing the class six roads it was just eugene bob and myself standing out in the field freezing our ass off bullshitting for like an hour and a half and then Liza calls is like what are you guys doing to come inside and it's warm in here you dumbasses and um <laughs> and then we i hung out at and we hung out inside the house for a while and it, it was just cool like talking about random stuff and like Liza's chili is amazing um if you ever get a chance to eat her cooking she's fantastic at cooking um but yeah it's it's just i've had i have really good memories bullshitting with them and it's, I don't know, it's just, they're really good people, you know, and it's, I'm just so thankful that I know everybody I know, like, and that's one of the coolest things about listening to you guys, I'm not a podcast guy, but 
what got me into listening to it is like Bob's like, oh, I'm doing this, so I listened to it. And I was like, dude, that was pretty awesome. And then I started going down the list, and I was like, oh, Harry Hendrix, I fucking love that guy. And I started listening to all my friends, so I'm still jumping around listening to random podcasts. And it's cool too because like I'm learning new things about the friends that I don't know about. Like I knew Katrini was into King and the Hammers. But I didn't realize he was there from like basically day one, you know. Yeah. And listening to his that, those stories was amazing, you know. And listening to Eric Amato talk about um, starting up a company doing fluid dynamics um, and steering pumps and hydraulics and stuff. It's he is a remarkably smart guy, and like I knew Harry was super smart, and just listening him talk to and talk about like going to school for engineering and that type of stuff blows my mind you know it's you never know who you're going to meet in this sport and it's easy oh, yeah. to look at these guys and look at these fucking dumbass rednecks they they're so damn stupid and spend all this money on stuff and you you talk to people and you realize that like you're willing with a do with a phd you know like the guys like eric waybrand he was the smartest guy i've ever met you know, yeah, I think that um, given everything that you're saying there, the I think a good closer for this would be that the content of your character and the actions that you put forward are going to be some of the most important things because that is essentially what you leave behind and how you view the world. Exactly. And, um, you know, I think that we're really close to the uh, deadline. I feel bad for Cody, and I'd love to keep <laughs> going with this, but we're going to have to get this edited tonight because we got some stuff going on uh, tomorrow with the release, and I'm not going to be home. So I think that uh, we'll close it out right about here with this. Um, it's going to be dad advice. It's not going to be the normal witty closing, but... <laughs> Make sure that the actions that you do in this world are something that you would be proud to be remembered by and be kind to animals.